Alternative Radio. Greetings and salutations everybody out there in podcast land. This is the Judo Chop Suey Podcast, and I'm your host, Judo Dave Roman. It's great to be back with you all once again. On this episode of the Judo Chop Suey Podcast, I'm going to have a special guest, Dr. Roddy Ferguson. Now, over the past year or so, anytime that I've had a guest and the interview has gone long, I've typically broken up the interview into two or three episodes. That way it allows me to cover some of the judo news and related items, but I'm not going to do that this time. I know we just had the Tel Aviv Grand Slam, uh, which is a newer event. It used to be a Grand Prix, and now it's a Grand Slam, and it was a tremendous event. I did manage to see some of the matches. I didn't see everything, but I am not going to be breaking that down in this episode. This episode is strictly about my guest, Dr. Roddy Ferguson. Now, for those of you who may not be aware, my guest is a 2004 Olympian, a four-time national champion. He's currently a judo rokudan. He is also a, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, an entrepreneur, a, the, the former head coach of the Bahamas national team, which is a very going to be a very interesting point of discussion uh, that we get into in this interview. Really, really interesting stuff. Uh, he's a published author and he's undefeated in MMA. This was an interview that was conducted back in December and uh, I apologize. I'm just getting around to releasing it now. As I mentioned in my previous episode, I've been extremely busy with house hunting and, and you know packing and preparing for a new home and things like that. And with less than three weeks to go, I wanted to make sure I got this episode out because I would likely not be able to record anything over the next three weeks. So before I air the interview with Dr. Ferguson, I would like to give a special thank you to every single guest that has ever appeared on the podcast. And the reason why I want to bring this up right now is because doing this interview with Dr. Ferguson would not have been possible without the practice of doing interviews over the past four years. Now, for those of you who may not know, Certainly my, my previous guests know this, but whenever I prepare for an interview, I, I, I liken it to kata in the sense that I have a plan on what questions I want to ask and in what order I'm going to ask them. And, and I'm very thoroughly prepared for all of my interviews. And we typically hit all of the questions in the order that I've written them out. I typically share that order and share those questions with my guests so that way that they're not thrown. So that way they know and they have the comfort knowing that I'm not here to railroad them and that I'm not going to surprise them with with any gotcha questions. That's just simply not my deal. So of every interview that I've done up to this point is like Kata. I would liken this interview with Dr. Ferguson more like Ron Dory, and I loved it. I loved every second of it. Now, I did the typical thing. I, I sent him an outline of what I wanted to cover in kind of the order and stuff, but as soon as we started talking, that kind of went right out the window, and I had to adjust, and I had to be uh, very flexible with how I approached this interview and my questions and such, and unlike so many 
episodes that I've done in the past, this time around, I'm, I'm very proud of my work. I'm very proud of the conversation that, that, that Radhi and I had. And I would like to say this. There's many people out there that know uh, Dr. Ferguson personally. I have never had an opportunity to speak with him personally. However, I think for those of you who do not know him, there is an idea that you may have of who he is as a person. And I would dare say that whatever idea you have of who Dr. Ferguson is, you're probably wrong. You know, I remember my former judo coach who's since passed away. He once told me that Rodney Ferguson is the nicest person he has ever known in his life. And I would like to think that this interview that I conducted with him, that I think you're going to catch a glimpse of that. I certainly did. And I really think he's a tremendous person with a tremendous story. Now, I want you all to be prepared. This episode, I am not going to break it up. It is a two-hour-plus interview. And I thought maybe I should break it up into two episodes, but the the interview was just so fascinating to me that I don't think I would want to do that to any of you to break it up. None of this tune in next week or tune in in two weeks to find out the rest of the interview and what else he says. I didn't want to do that to you all. And besides, like I said, I'm not sure when I would have another opportunity over the next two or three weeks to even create another episode. So without any further delay, it is my pleasure to introduce you, Dr. Roddy Ferguson. Roddy, welcome to the Judo Chop Suey Podcast. How you doing this evening? You're doing fantastic, man. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on to the podcast. This is something that I've wanted to do for, for quite some time. I've actually had probably... No less than you know, quite a number of people ask me to bring you on. I, I've I've always been hesitant for whatever reason. I, I don't know why. I just now we need to get down. We need to get on the bottom of that. Why why were you hesitant? Because you we stayed literally forty minutes from each other. I I know. Well, you, you you've had every other Olympian that I know on here. No, you, I I've not. I've I had. You're the first Olympian I've had on here. I haven't had anybody. I haven't had anybody else. I usually typically reach out to. Uh, you know, local club owners and things, you know, things like that. Um, but no, you're the, you're the first, believe me. You're the first Olympian that I've had on here. So all right, I definitely, right. definitely want to get thought, I, thought you, I thought you had Jimmy on here before. No, no, that was, that was probably somebody else. No, I've not had Jimmy on here before. Okay, right. Yeah, so, so you, you are the most high-profile guest that I've had today, uh-huh. I would think. How about that? So, but maybe a lot of people don't know who you are. Um, that's probably unlikely if you're listening from the United States, but for people around the world, why don't you uh, give those listeners uh, an opportunity to know a little bit who you are, uh, how long you've been doing judo, uh, you know, where you're training, you know, how long you've been coaching, that kind of thing. Well, um, first, my name is Roddy Bullet Ferguson. Um, I am um, a descendant from the Bahamas. My grandparents on both sides are from the Caribbean and my parents are first generation Americans. And I grew up primarily in Miami, Florida. I started judo at the age of six and I stopped at 12 when we had to move to Pennsylvania. And I didn't pick judo up again until I graduated from college. I had an opportunity to go to Howard University where I was, um, I went on a football scholarship while studying mechanical engineering. And I did football, I wrestled and I ran track. 
and I started in all of them at the Division One level. I was fortunate enough to get inducted into the Howard University Hall of Fame in 2014. And when I graduated from Howard University in 1997, I thought I was going to play in the NFL. I had an offer to play in the Canadian Football League, but I took a job with Texas Instruments because getting 27.5 a year in Canada was not better than the 40,800 in 1997. Of course. Uh, I returned to judo after um, working for Texas Instruments and I found myself in Attleboro, Massachusetts. And while there, I realized that I was about an hour away, an hour and 15 minutes away from Jimmy Pedro. And I watched Jimmy Pedro win the, the bronze medal in 1996. So when I saw that, I told my mom, I said, I want to go to the Olympics in judo. And I remember she, she laughed at me. Um, I just thought it was Providence that I was able to be in, in Massachusetts. And I ended up training with Jimmy. And from there, everything just took off. I ended up um, becoming ranked in the country. I ended up making the Olympic team in six and a half years. Um, and after making the Olympic team, I ended up coaching people who have gone to the Olympics. And I was able to be the, the only person in the United States, only Olympian to ever hold an international coaching assignment where I was the head coach with Bahamas Judo Federation. And I coached um, the Bahamas Judo Federation from 2009 to 2011 and produced the first Olympian in the Bahamas, um, Cynthia Ramming, who went to the Youth Olympic Games. Um, I've coached at the World Championships, the Judo World, the Junior World Championships, the Cadet World Championships, the CAC Games, and I've had every large assignment you can have outside of coaching at the Olympics. So I want to definitely get into a lot of those uh, things that you listed out in detail. I do want to start mm -hmm. off with your, your, just briefly your football career. Mm -hmm. what, what position did you play at, at Howard University? I played running back and fullback. Now, when you grew up in Miami, I know Florida is a big It's great for producing football talent. Was did you you started? Did you start football? I know you started no, judo. No, no, my dad played. My dad played in the NFL, and he and he went to. He was um, the first thousand yard rusher at the University of Wisconsin. And my dad played in the Canadian Football League and the World Football League. My dad would not let me start football early. Really? How really? old were you when I started football? Yeah. I didn't start football until I got to eighth grade. I was, um, I think I was 13 or 14 at the time. Wow, that, that's fascinating because you, you, you would have had to blossom very quickly to, to get to, to be able to, to be, uh, uh, get a scholarship for Howard. And, and you, now you said you were running back? Yes, sir. Wow. So now I'm, now I'm curious to find out, and I may jump around here quite a bit, but, but now it's in my mind. How did football help you with judo later on as, as you – What's that? Scouting and film. Um, the, really? one hole, the one hole of weakness that I saw in the game when I came to judo was they, don't, they didn't watch film the way that I did. And when you play football at the college level, man, I mean, you, you play at a D1 level, you're, you're watching film every day. You're in, the, you're in the office watching film with the coach. You're watching film after practice. You're watching film on your own. You're watching film, dissecting film. You have scouting reports. You have, um, man, you got, you have a standard playbook, but then the playbook kind of is tweaked and changed every week based upon what somebody else presents. Um, you have down and distance and tendencies, and mm -hmm. they didn't do any of that stuff, man. I, I was, I studied film and broke film down and put that slow motion loop loops on on my on my competition, and 
I, I took notes and I journaled. I mean, I, when I walked on the mat, I pretty much knew where you were going to move and, and what hand you were gonna reach with first and when, and if I fell on the ground, what Nawaza sequence you're gonna use. Football prepared me for the chess match of, of, of judo. Wow, that, that's fascinating. And, and you said that when you, now do you feel like you kind of brought this in to, to judo, at least from a, a, an American point of view? I, I don't know what the, what the Japanese team or, no, the, or the French no, team I didn't. do. I didn't know. There's another person who I saw doing it. I saw him, when I was coming up, I saw Steve Cohen had done it for Jimmy Pedro. He had a large book, but he had done it on the international level. I had only done it on the national level. Um, but other than that, I had not seen anybody. I had not seen anybody else do it in in the United States. Um, Chris Round and I actually wrote the scouting report for Kayla when she prepared for the to win her second gold medal at the 2016 Olympics. Um, Jimmy Pedro does a lot of study, and he understands the importance of scouting reports. Um, and in his position as uh, the head coach, he also delegates a lot to make sure that he has the information that he needs in order to make the decisions that he needs to make from that, from the coach's chair and inside the dojo. So he, he's aware of it too, but he had it because Steve Cohen was one of the people on, you could say his team, if you will, who used to provide him with the information and break down the film and the things for him and have those conversations with him. Um, on a preparatory level before he got on the mat. So it was already there. I don't think it really, even to this day, has really permeated the fabric of the judo culture in the United States. Mm -hmm. What what I found, found out is that at the high levels, there lacks a great deal of professionalism. And then unfortunately, those people who are professionals, there's too much infighting with those individuals so that as a country, we cannot we cannot scale and move as we need up the ladder to, to help all the people who want to to get better get better. We just we can't do it because there's so much fighting over nothing. But well, don't listen to this one, or don't listen to that one, or that person doesn't know judo, or this person doesn't know what they're talking about. Where everybody has a core competency that they can bring to the table. And instead of not utilizing somebody else's color of intelligence to build the tapestry of knowledge that we need, what we do is we throw that away so that we can just have a, a unicolor blanket. Right. And I, I think that, and we end up covering nothing. And I think that is the, the issue or the problem that we have with judo in the United States. It's not that... There's not a system available. There is a system available. The system just hasn't permeated the fabric of, of, of judo or the judo culture in the United States such that it can help everybody grow. And it's truly unfortunate. I think one of the, the most unfortunate things about it is, from my standpoint, because I know before we got started, there were some things that you provided that we were going to discuss. Mm -hmm. I, can't, I couldn't wait to discuss yeah. <laughs> of why I have not been on a team to coach. Yeah, I, I definitely want to know that because... Right, no, and listen, and, and let, let me tell you something. 
Sure. I will, I will tell you this. I can provide you with many reasons in the social political era that we sit in currently, but I will not. What I will say is this. I don't know of any other person who has competed at the Olympic Games for the United States who has my pedigree in terms of athletic achievement and academic achievement and entrepreneurial success across the board. I'm not, I am not aware of one. So I want to, I, I want to talk about your entrepreneurial success over the, I have been familiar with you uh, really for a very long time. And, and, and a large part of that is you have always offered products and services um, that you felt were missing. And it seemed to me that, that much of what you offered, you felt that there was a, Avoid. It seemed to me there was a void. They, exactly. So I want to talk about some of the things that you, some of, some of your entrepreneurial ventures, and I want to talk about maybe how that void that you're trying to fill is that you're being almost ignored in a way. Because I don't, to me, with the knowledge that you have, especially, I mean, the scouting I, I, you know, the video scouting, I, I think is fantastic. I don't, I don't think there's enough of that happening. Even, even at, that should be done on a national level. If I, if I had a kid, you know, going for nationals, I, I, that would be one of the things I would look to do. I don't think enough coaches do that, but I want to talk about these entrepreneurial ventures that you've had. And I want to find out why maybe that has, you seems to me, and I hate to say it, I'm going to get people upset. I don't, it, it, USA, it is, Ju, USA Judo has not really taken advantage of, of some of the things that you, you excel at. Without a doubt. Without so a what, doubt. what, what things, talk a little bit about your entrepreneurial ventures that, that are specific to the, for the judo market and that space. Well, um, first and foremost, the, the one thing that I, I really want people to understand is that judo in and of itself is nothing more than a standard canon of information. Judo is a martial arts and martial arts fall under the fine arts and fine arts deal with the study of kinesis and the study of human movement. At the end of the day, judo is a series of dance moves that are done in a martial fashion to create a certain result in a sporting framework. I wanna help people quote unquote dance better, which is move better in the psychomotor domain. I wanna help them think better because thought precedes action in the cognitive domain. And then I wanna help them feel better about that which they do and provide them with the, the right things or the right way to emote in the effective domain. So my products cover those three domains and mainly deal with the, on the psychomotor side, the, the strength and conditioning and the preparatory phase before somebody gets on the mat. And then on the, on the technical side, what you need to do or what is missing on the mat, that, that does a deep dive, not on general knowledge, but specialized knowledge. Anybody can go to the Gokyo Nawaza and find all the techniques or all the throws. That's not the most important piece to me. The most important piece is how do I access the entry point to be able to throw to the point where a lot of people talk about the three parts of a judo throw where I have literally 
changed my presentation number and I said there's four parts of a judo throw. The, the three parts of the judo throw don't cover the main part, which is kumikata. And if you don't have any kumikata, you don't grip, then there is no kazushi entry and then throw. So I, I cover things that allow people to access or unlock the treasure chest of throws that they have or have a better relationship with their coach inside of the dojo, not not go around their coach. And then on the, on, the, on the third point, on the emotional side, I've written books. I have audio programs that are on Udemy um, to, to help people think differently about judo so that they behave differently about judo. And I provide this for coaches, for practitioners, and also parents. And I, I tell people this, I coach and teach and train more people than any coach in the United States. Right now on Udemy.com, I have 12,500 students. Wow. That's one platform. That's not my individual platform. Right. That's not, that's not, those are not my individual coaching programs. There's nobody, there's no coach in the United States who teaches or coaches more people than me. Nobody. Right. I'm not talking about selling a DVD or a video program. Cause I can tell you right now, everybody who comes out the next hottest thing or the next new shiny object or the next person who's hot on the scene, like I say, Travis Stevens right now is hot on the scene. Travis Stevens, I'm sure sells more judo products through the, the company that he deals with than, than I do currently, but more than I've sold. No. Not even close. Now, what um, what motivated you to? So uh, yeah, okay. So I'm gonna jump around. I know we have an outline, but I'm gonna jump around here because I find this interesting. Why look to be a judo coach? And I I, I know I want to talk about your Olympic uh, experience and and being a national champion and such. But let's since we're on the subject of coaching. Let's get to that now. Why pursue judo coaching, especially when you could have had an opportunity to be a football coach? You could have had an opportunity to, hmm. to you know, not only play football professionally, but many, many collegiate athletes that play football, if they don't make it to the pros, they end up on somebody's staff, whether that's in college or even at the NFL level. Why pursue uh, judo after college? Well, I tell you what, I, I did my, I'm also a certified strength and conditioning specialist. I did my volunteer work at the University of Maryland. I was an assistant strength and conditioning coach at um, Towson State University. Okay. And I also used to work with um, Juan Carlos Santana. We had a company uh, that dealt with strength and conditioning for combat sports and football players, mm -hmm. et cetera. So I've, I did the coaching on that end. It's a lot of grunt work. Um, I really wanted to spend my time being an entrepreneur. Um, my mom was an entrepreneur, my dad was an entrepreneur, and I, I really have an entrepreneur mindset. Um, I coach, but at the core I teach. And I teach in my opinion, and I, and I, I, have, no, I have no problem with saying that a lot of people get my confidence construed with arrogance. And to that end, I don't care because 
Uh, I, last year I had the opportunity to finish paying off all my $122,000 of school loans and I was able to pay them off because I spent the time in the classroom with the Masters of Arts of Teaching. I spent the time in the classroom through the, the PhD in education to learn how to educate. And if there's one thing that I enjoy more than anything, I enjoy teaching. I enjoy watching students get that aha moment. I enjoy seeing people do things that they never thought they can do before. And inside of teaching, I also enjoy coaching. I enjoy in the true sense of the word coach, attaching something or making a connection with the student to something that they, they don't have yet and allow that thing to pull them forward so that they can move and increase and grow. And I got into the teaching and the coaching because it is what I wanted to do. It's what I like to do. It's what allows me to get up in the morning and, and, and put my feet on the ground and say, thank you, Jesus, for another day and for another opportunity to get to share what you've given me to share with other people. And that is really why I like to, to teach and I like to coach. I mean, I, I absolutely 100% love it. And at the end of the day, I don't coach judo. I don't coach jujitsu. I coach engineering. I got an undergraduate degree in engineering. All I coach are systems. I use a systems-based engineering approach when it comes to judo and jujitsu. The moves don't matter to me. The throws don't matter to me. The, at the end of the day, the grips don't matter to me. None of those things matter to me when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm watching it and I'm seeing it. All of it, I'm watching a system. All I do is I break down the system and I flow chart it and I find the decision gates and then I find out what makes each part work. And then I attack those particular parts and then I put, and then I, I put it all together and then I make sure that the system can run so that I can get the outcome that I'm looking for. So you, so when you coach, really, it could be judo, it could be anything. You're you're yeah, looking man. for specific. You're you're coaching your 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 students to do specific things in specific sequences. Do I have that correct? Correct. Over and over again through deliberate practice. Through deliberate practice. So, so for example, grip fighting. You have the way that you teach grip fighting is is specific to sequences in the sense that you you do this motion and if the person reacts this way you you follow up with this if they do something else you follow up with that you do you do this motion which then creates this response so. It, it is a if-then loop, but it's a if-then loop, which is seasoned and being proactive, not I'm going to take what they give me. Everything is based on the SR model of stimulus response, stimulus response, stimulus response, stimulus response. So if you and I are doing jujitsu, all right, and you're inside of my guard, the first thing that I want to do is I want to take my right hand and put it on your right lapel as if I'm getting ready to set up a cross choke. And when I do that, what is your reaction? To get the grip off. How? By trying to control your wrist and breaking it off of that Correct. lapel. And you're going to reach up with what hand to do that? Let's see. If, if it was me, I would start off. Oh, I'm probably going to get this wrong with my right hand. With your right hand. And as soon as you grab, as soon as you reach up with your right hand, my left hand is going to cast paw grip your 
right sleeve. I'm going to plant my right foot on the ground. And I'm going to shrimp my butt out and start cutting my knee across in order to scissor sweep you. And you're not going to be able to stop it because your right hand is already eliminated from the process, which then means because it's eliminated from the process, you're going to widen your knees to create a wide base. And once you do that, then I'm going to gas pedal and push against your thigh and then you're gonna go over for the scissor sweep. And it has nothing to do with how strong you are, it has nothing to do with how big you are. It's all based upon a stimulus response model. And it is it is applied psychology and applied engineering and applied physics. Do you believe that you can you can predict the, the stimulus response? Yes. And, and and do you do you think that can be done in in, in every situation? It can be mapped in every situation. Mapped, okay. You can, you can predict. That doesn't mean that your prediction is going to be correct because when you're predicting, you're, you're just futuring. So what I would say is you could have gave a different response than what I said, but I do know this. 70 or 80% of the time, your response is going to be to reach up with your right hand to stop that. Right. That's it. If you don't reach up with your right hand and stop that, I cut the angle and I go for the choke. So when you are coaching judo or Brazilian jiu-jitsu, these are the type, this is the type of approach, the stimulus response approach that you take. And so would it be fair to say that, that maybe you don't need a, a huge library of techniques you do not. and skills? You do not. And you I didn't not. realize that. I didn't realize that until I got my black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Once I got my black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I said, man, I'm not doing all that stuff anymore, man. I'm, I'm not doing that. I can't, I can't do it. I can't, I can't do it anyway. I, I don't have the, my body is so beat up. I don't have the ability to do it. Here's what I found out. I said, if you cannot do it when you're older, then it's not, it's not pure Judo. It's not pure Jiu-Jitsu. It's not. Right. Like th those those dudes who are really, really good, like during my time, there's a guy by the name of Kosei Inoue, who was um, Olympic champion at 100 kilograms, who has 200 pounds. And his judo wasn't fancy. It was Osoto, Ouchi, and Uchimata. Uchimata, right. That was it. That was it. Osoto, Ouchi, and Uchimata. That was it. Now, we see a lot of people do a lot of fancy stuff who are successful. But the, those people can't do those moves when they get older. Case mm -hmm. in point, one of the best Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practitioners has the most simple Jiu-Jitsu game ever. That's Roger Gracie. There's absolutely nothing fancy there. There's takedown, pass, mount, kata jujijime, which is cross choke. Right. And it's not, and it's happening, it doesn't matter who he's fighting. It's the same outcome. Why? Because it's system-based. Do you think he knows it's system-based? Or it's just... Roger? Yeah. Yes, I do believe he knows it's system-based. He, he do, I, do. I, okay. I know people who train with Roger. I also... Yeah, I got a um, three-time Olympian, Winston Gordon, who sees a purple belt in Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah, he's a uh, uh, Great Britain, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. He just got a six-degree black belt. I mean, so yeah, it's red and white, but it's Rokudan. Oh, um, wow. He used to train grips with Roger, which really helped Roger at the world level. Him, so Ray Stevens and Winnie used to help Roger with his judo, along with other people in the club, I'm sure. Right. Uh, and his, his 
his grip fighting game, Roger's grip fighting game is superior to anybody in the space in, in jujitsu that he fights because he just practices with better people. Um, so he understands the system of gripping and knows how to apply it in the BJJ competitive framework. So he understands systems, clearly. Right. Now, does he teach like that inside of his dojo? I don't know. I've never been on his training. Mm -hmm. Now, who do, um, j just out of curiosity, you are also a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Who promoted you to, to black belt? Who did you train under, and how, how long did that take you? Because uh, I'm just curious. You know, there's, there's the regular average Joes like myself that just, you know, train and have fun. I'm curious to know when, when you started jiu-jitsu and how long it took you to earn a, uh, a black belt. I started Brazilian jiu-jitsu in 1998. I was on path to get a black belt in about four years. Okay. Um, the, I started with Lloyd Irvin in Maryland when I was um, going to grad school. I started before that, before I went to grad school. Um, okay. Uh, I went all the way up to brown belt under Lord. I got my black belt from Ricardo Laborio in 2005, 2005, 2006, I believe. Um, I got my first degree, second degree, third degree, and fourth degree under Ricardo Laborio. Okay, so you were a jujitsu black belt when you competed in the Olympics. No. I was a brown. No, you were not. You were brown. Okay. But you were pretty close. I was close. I started, when I hit purple belt, I was tapping people in, in judo a lot more. Sure. Yes. A lot more. For sure. My, my confidence level, once I hit purple belt level in judo was through the roof. Interesting. I was, I was, why, do you, I was why do you think that is? Trying to get to the ground. What'd you say? What, what, now, what do you think, why do you think that is? What, what was, what was it about that, that period of time, purple belt that, where really, where you really grew as an athlete there? Well, that's when you really define and refine your, your game. Um, when you begin the refinement of your game. Okay. Um, you define it and you refine it at that purple belt level. It's a long belt. It's not, it's the longest belt. You stay at that long than anything else. Um, you can fly through brown and fly through you can fly through brown theoretically and you fly through blue theoretically too, but purple, man, you sit for a little while. Yeah. Um, and I was able to get through purple quick because I competed and I mm -hmm. played second in the world um, at the Mungels. I lost to Kimagu on a decision. Wait, wait, you, I, you did? I See, I didn't know that. Yeah, you, you competed to Jiu-Jitsu Worlds and you got second? Got second. I, could, I was at the Jiu-Jitsu Worlds and we got, we arrived late and I was running into the building on last call, ran down to the edge of the mat, changed my clothes. And Lloyd said, he said, man, here we go. I said, man, I'm just going to use this as a warm up. I'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> Went out there. And I had a couple of tough matches that day. I also fought Rafael Lovato that day, which was tough. Um, and I tell people this, I am, listen, I am no, I am not in the same, I am not in the same um Hemisphere is Rafael Lovato. I enjoy saying that I beat Rafael Lovato that day. Rafael Lovato fought with a broken foot. And when I mean a broken foot, I don't mean a fake broken foot. His foot was all the way broken. He oh. hopped out on the mat and fought anyway, and I won on an advantage. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> wow. But it was a, um, 
I also fought um, Chael Sonnen's uh, BJJ coach that day. Oh, okay. I forget what his name is. Um, oh my God, the dude was strong as an ox. Um, it was it was a good day, and I also fought. I fought. A, I fought at the Pan Ams for purple belt, and I lost the Pan Ams purple belt by a decision too. Huh. I, had, well, I, I literally had a guy come out who was like he was about six five, came out, put both hands on my belt, and took a knee. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't move him, couldn't throw him, couldn't do it. I wasn't going to pull guard. Um, yeah. and, I, and I ended up losing by decision too. Wow. Now, uh, what year was, was this? What, what, 2001. Time, 2001. Okay. So that, that time period. 2001 Moon Gels, uh and Hoxha Division. Yeah. And, uh, and Pan Ams too. So that's your Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu international experience. Now, talking about 2000s, early 2000s, that's also you're competing heavily in judo as well. And you were an alternate for Team USA in 2000? 2000, I was an alternate. So what happened is I had to really, after 2001, I, I shifted focus hard on the Jiu-Jitsu. Like I, had, I almost left Jiu-Jitsu alone. You have to. You can't, you can't keep doing you have to focus on that, what you're doing. So I, I if I would have kept doing jujitsu, I would have my black belt in another year and a half. Sure. Right. Cause the rate at which we, at, at which we practice. Um, and I mean, we, I mean, talking about Olympic level athletes, we just practice more than a lot. I mean, of course, by default, um, because it was necessary. Um, I, I would have had my black belt in 98, 99, 2000, 2001, 2002. I would have my black belt about four and a half, five years. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people looked at some of the black belts from Lord Urban and thought that people were getting their black belts fast or too quick. Or I don't think they understand how many hours a day that we train. You know, you're talking about two and a half, three in the morning, another, you know, another one or two in the middle of the day, screwing around on the mat and then come back at night for another two two hours, two and a half hours. It's just, it's almost all day. Yeah. I tell people, I I tell people all the time, you know, the amount of years don't matter. It's the hours on the mat. That's how you hours, man. It's hours. Like it's it's like somebody like, like, like Travis, who's, who's absolutely amazing. Um, He gets his black belt in 18, 18 months. Yeah. I mean, the amount of time that he spent on the mat, and you, and you cannot discredit or discount his the the, the years of judo experience. Like if somebody when somebody comes to the table and they're a black belt in judo, um, more often than not, they're already at the blue belt level in, in BJJ mm-hmm. Be, because takedowns count too. You know, it's like I I tell people I said, man, it's 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 possible for you to be a you could be a black belt in judo and not have great takedowns. Right. And you can also be a black belt in BJJ and not have great groundwork. It's possible. Hmm. It has to be possible because BJJ also has takedowns in it. And you and I know that people have black belts in judo who, who have done kosen judo and their, their groundwork is great. Their stand up is not, but they're still black belts because all of the techniques that you, that, Jiu-Jitsu has in it. Judo has in it. We don't want to have this judo versus jujitsu discussion. No, no, no. I'm I'm a fan of both. That's I, I know that's not your intention. 
No, no, it, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of both. And I've had this conversation with Robert Drysdale. We talked on, we talked online twice. We talked behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. He, he, we're both in, in agreement. Like this, Helio learned judo. He, just, he didn't learn anything different than judo. That's what he learned. Now, what I, he I mar- agree, absolutely. What, what I, he marketed and what he purported and how it's changed over, over time, it's not, it's not judo anymore. No, it's not. What it started as is what it was. But then judo is not judo anymore. Like if you did, if you took a time warp and went back and practiced judo in 1984, 1975, it would not look anything like the judo today. No. Judo today, it, looks, it looks ridiculous. I mean, it looks, it looks ridiculous. It looks like Greco-Roman chicken fighting in a jacket. No, you don't like it? I, I, I appreciate it. <laughs> you appreciate it. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I, I don't think it's as exciting. It's um it it has its complexities. I enjoy the chess match of it. As when a sport becomes more myopic in terms of it fo- of its focus, it becomes more difficult. Um like Greco-Roman wrestling is hard. Yeah. It's very, very difficult. You don't have a lot of takedowns available. It is it's a difficult sport. It's really hard. They made judo like really, really hard. Judo became a hardcore four-minute sprint. Yes, I I agree. That's probably. I mean, I really enjoy watching the IJF World Tour. I do like the rules, but I do understand your point. It has become a sprint. It, there, the, there's too many penalties. Man. I I I agree. And, and and I I also agree it really is almost too hard to score. I I say it all the time. It's like if you're taking off your feet, you're you're probably gonna get scored on. It just there's no there's almost no counter to that except just don't get thrown. That's it. Don't know, you know. Don't get off your feet because it's it's so difficult when I when I right. watch these these athletes. Right. But you but you prefer the the older the way things used to be prior to, you know, more like in the eighties when there was more time to, to, to employ your game plan. Well, I, there, there is a, there is time to employ your game plan. Um, it's just not uniform among the referees. It's not uniform at tournaments, which is what I have a problem with sometimes. Uh, I don't mind the matches being four minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, I would like a wider, buffet if you will of of techniques i i enjoy the the pickups and the tegaruma and the the far side knee taps and the kuchiki mm-hmm. taoshis and the, i mean the ankle you know grabs I, I i enjoy those things i enjoy the pickups and the double legs i i enjoy those things um i think the i think the game is a lot more exciting with the with the firemen's the, the problem with that is that when you open up that that technical vat, you also open up all the possibilities for coaches and athletes to implement tactics around those techniques so that they can win. Now That's you would point. do, but you would do that too as a coach, correct? Of course, my 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 job is my job is not to follow the rules, man. My job is to know the rules 
my job is not to break the rules, mm-hmm. nor is my job, it's not my job to follow the rules. My job is to know the rules and provide my athlete with the best set of instructions to produce a favorable outcome. I don't care about the IGF and what their rules are. That, that's none of my business. Mm-hmm. My business is I'm in the winning business. When I'm coaching at the professional level, I'm in the winning business. That's it. Right. So you do you take time to... Yes. I hate to sound sound like I'm cheapening what you're doing because I'm, I'm not. Do you take time to evaluate the rules yes. and see where the holes are in the rules the and take Correct. advantage of that? You do? Yes, okay. for sure. I can tell you where the holes are in today's game right now. You can. G- yes. give, me, give me one. Give me, give me one. Tumagaishi is the hole in today's game. And, and why is that? Because you, it allows you to exit and escape with two hands in the, on the gi when you're out gripped without a false attack. Now, the problem is, is that people have figured this out. So now they start banging the athletes with a false attack. So what you have to do is you have to hip shift and drag first and then do the sumigaish. You can't just jump in on the sumigaish. I tell you, I tell, I've told my athletes this before, you cannot just do sumigaish. You have to, ah, like turn your hip like you're trying to throw for a second and then drag to get the other person's hips back and then come underneath and just, even if you kick the, the legs back, you have to lift the person off the ground slightly so that you can move into your groundwork and it can look like it's a throw. Right, because you're, you're, show, you're demonstrating that you've created Kazushi instead Correct. of just flopping to the ground. When you flop to the ground, you get the false attack. But see, that's interesting to me that you, you, know, you would identify something like that and, and now you've created a game plan to, to gain an advantage there for somebody whose Nawaza may be stronger than their, than their Tachiwaza. Correct. Fascinating. And then you that, create, and then, and then that's the, when you start, you create the butterfly, you create your butterfly guard system for judo. There's no reason, t- what I see a lot of people do, there's no reason to utilize Sumigaish unless you have a good guard game. I see people do Sumigaish, and as soon as they miss, they turn that on their stomach. Person yeah. hops on top yeah. of them. It's the stupidest thing I've ever done. Yeah. Person hops on the top of them, and it's like, you don't have anything. You're, you're utilizing a throw that doesn't fit within a system. Right. The throw is, don't worry about Sumi. Do you have a Sumi Gaishi system where you're attacking the Udigatami, which some people call the razor, and if they move the hand in, then you attack the Jujigatami, or they move the hand in, then you attack the Senkaku or the triangle from the back, or they, they, they move over and then you, you go for the Omoplata, or they move the hand around and you push the elbow or shirt back in and re-attack the triangle. Like, you have to create the systems based upon, and the throws are portions of the system. The throws and the attacks, not just throws, but the attacks, they are nothing more than bullets that fit with inside, they fit inside of a gun. Mm-hmm. Your job is to develop the gun. And then we, we, t- we use whatever gun we need to, to use in order to get this person out of here. Now, I want to go back to some of your Olympic experience when you were being now, Jimmy Pedro was your coach. Is that correct? Or did you have other coaches during that time? Jimmy Pedro was my mentor and my muse, if you will. Uh, My coach, my coaches at that time, I had a strength and conditioning coach was Juan Carlos Santana. 
My Nawaza, my ground coach was Lloyd Irvin. My head coach um, was Eddie Liddy at the Olympic Training Center. Yes. My, my technical coach for throwing was Angelo Ruiz from Puerto Rico. Um, I had a sports psychologist by the name of Dr. Peter Haverhill. And those were my coaches. That's quite a team. Um, I hate to even ask, but now I'm curious. How, how did you have so many coaches? Because I, I think... And, right, and I, and, I had, and I had two physicians that I had too. You had two, more, you had two physicians on top of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, any, any nutritionists at all? Well, one of my doctors served as a nutritionist. Okay. He's passed away since, though. Okay. Uh, gotcha. Um, I recently had an interview uh, with Ajax Tadehara, who was on Team USA. He's since retired. He retired recently. He had described a lot of uh, what you are telling me in terms of what you had for, for coaches and a support system. Uh, it it was evident that he didn't have that. Was was no, was all of your support uh, out of your own pocket, or yeah, were you being supported it, at the time? It was out of my own pocket, and it goes back to what you said about football. It's what I learned from football. You know, I need a head coach, and then I need I need an offensive line coach, a defensive line coach, I need a special teams coach, I need a running back coach, other coaches. So Eddie Liddy was my he was my head coach. But inside of that, I had – there are other things inside of the judo game that I needed help with. You know, I need, I need a – on the Nawaza side, I need somebody who's going to handle the Nawaza. So Lloyd handled the Nawaza. I sent film. We were on the phone, videos, talking, going through scenarios. And because he understands systems, I can have the conversation. People say, oh, you can't, you can't learn online. You can't learn over the phone. You sound like an idiot. You sound like an idiot. You sound like a jackass. You sound like an idiot. You and I just had a conversation about the scissor sweep mm-hmm. just online and setting it up through the cross choke. Did we not? Yes, we did. And you understood exactly what I was saying, even to the point where you're like, damn, I, I want to try that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. And, and that's based upon you understanding what system I'm talking about. If I say, okay, listen, Dave, let's jump into the, the scissor sweep system. Now, what allows us to be able to to get the response that we need from the particular stimulus. Do you put your, do you reach up with your right hand to my, to, to the, do you reach it with your right hand to my wrist? If my hand is on your lapel and it's low? No. You reach up when it's high on your what? Neck. You're right. Because the neck provides the psychological threat. So the placement of the hand provides a psychological threat. And if the placement of the hand is not correct, then the response won't be what I'm looking for. So we can have that particular conversation. So I needed somebody who understood the language that I spoke and Lloyd understood that language. When it came to my stand-up game, my stand-up game had to be very simple. And I was a short guy who was playing in a, in a weight class where everybody was, man, 6'2", 6'3", 6'4". And I was an undersized 100 kilograms. I, I fought 100 kilograms, but I only weighed 212 pounds. All right? I needed somebody who understood Selnagi and Sode really good. That's why I had Angelo Reese, three-time Olympian from Puerto Rico, really, really good. Understood how to throw both ways but stand one-sided. Mm-hmm. Um, really worked over and over again with left-sided Selnagi until I got it. I mean, the reps were just – it was horrible. Um, but, but he understood that. And then I knew that 
I needed to be as strong as possible. I lifted six days a week when I was competing. I only practiced judo three. I went to practice the other two days, but I didn't train the other two days. I was just in practice, moving around. I do some round with the with some of the women in there, but Eddie let my body rest because I, I had to be in the gym six days a week because I was undersized. And the guys at 100 kilos, they're, they're, you don't even, you don't have a clue of how strong those dudes are. It's mm -hmm. unbelievable. No, I don't. The, 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 the judogi hides a lot of that muscle. When oh, you... my God. And, and it, the, it's the, the athletes in BJJ are very good at their craft. But athletically, it's laughable to even think that they're in the same hemisphere as a world-class judoka or freestyle wrestler or Greco-Roman wrestler. They're not, they're not even as, it's not, it's not, even, it's not a discussion. Right. It's the same, it's the same way with them, with MMA, they're not even in the same hemisphere. They're not in the same, it's not even close. It's not close. To, to BJJ or, or the other, or the other aforementioned sports? They're, they're, it's, the, MMA is not close to judo or freestyle wrestling or Greco-Roman wrestling in terms of the the physiological profile of those particular athletes. Really? Okay, that, that's that's no, interesting. No. I, I, I've, I've obviously I've never fought. So, so, and, and, I, and here's an example. Daniel Cormier, right? Right. Was the heavyweight champ, correct? Yes. Okay. Even when he lost to Stipe, he's still the second best in the world in MMA heavyweight, right? Right. Okay. Daniel Cormier went to the Olympics with me in 2004. In what sport? Daniel Cormier went to the Olympics in freestyle wrestling in 2004. Oh, okay. I, I so, didn't realize that. If you take Daniel Cormier from 2004 and you put him against the Daniel Cormier from 2019, okay, and they run a 40 time and they lift weights and they squat and they bench and they do a stretch test and they do a stress test on a treadmill and they run a mile test, and they do a shuttle run. Which one of those athletes is going to test better? Oh, the 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 wrestler for sure. Of course, right. He's just a better athlete. He's just better. Like Cormier was, he was a he's a great MMA fighter, but he's not what he was when he was. He can't beat himself in wrestling yeah. if he fought himself in two thousand. No, because the physiological profile of that athlete. It's not the same. You can, you can call it the hardest sport in the world if you want to. You call it what you want to call it. Daniel Cormier, could, he could work out and train and be number two in the country, number two in the world in MMA. He can work out and train as hard as he wants to. He's not going to be number two in the world at, at, at freestyle wrestling. Why? Right. Because the sport is harder than the other one. And that's, and, and it doesn't, and I'm not talking about hard in terms of punches. I'm talking about hard in terms of it is statistically more difficult, which is the discussion that Khabib was having with Henry Cejudo when he was telling him that judo is class. Mm -hmm. The amount of countries that do judo, it, there's just more countries and more practitioners. So from a statistical level, judo is harder yeah un understood absolutely how did you identify that you needed all of these coaches because i i think there's an idea SWOT analysis. SWOT analysis. what kind of SWOT analysis well, now, can can you explain to the listeners what that is 
So you have to do a SWOT analysis on yourself first and, do a, and, and then do a SWOT analysis on the sport. So a SWOT analysis is strength, strength weaknesses, uh, opportunities, and threats. Now, since that time, a lot of things have changed in terms of business and economics. And a lot of people don't believe in SWOT analysis anymore or the efficacy of SWOT analysis. Uh, I still do. And during the time when I was competing, it was the it was the it was the best thing to utilize at the time. So when you run the SWOT analysis on yourself, you gotta add, you gotta list, you know, by quadrant, um, strength and then weaknesses and then opportunities and then threats and then look at your strengths. What are you really good at? And then look at the opposing weaknesses when it comes to that. And because of those opposing weak, we, and because of the, those opposing weaknesses, what are the threats to you because you're weak in those areas? And then look at the, what opportunities are available because you have such strength. And then what you do is then you, you create a, a game plan to increase your strengths and the opportunity to utilize them while patching up your weaknesses. And then you look at what's called the chronological landscape. How much time do I have available? Because then it's an economics problem. How much time do I have available? So based upon the chronological landscape, can I handle these particular weaknesses? If the answer is no, then cross it off. You can't deal with that. You just have to hope that the, the, the match never goes into that realm or into that range and focus on your strengths and the opportunities that you have and then fortify yourself so that that weakness doesn't does not get exposed do you did you identify your own weaknesses or oh, did you have people okay so so you were you were the the, the primary no, architect of so you, you mean did I, I identify them not myself and then i asked somebody else to do i asked every coach that i had to do a SWOT analysis for me you did okay yes okay and i asked them, I, but, but i would ask them i said what, what do you see my strengths being what do you, what do you see the what do, what do you see my weaknesses as my weaknesses? And that's what we dealt with. Like there were things that I was weak on in the, in the in the weight room that we had to deal with. That we had to deal with. And there were things that we didn't address. Did you have benchmarks for for strength because you you would, you you've said a couple times that you were undersized yes. for the uh, for the under 100 kilo division. You did you had benchmarks that you had that you felt that you had to meet in order to compete at that level? Yes, but they were they were benchmarks based upon power, not on strength. Power. How would you define? Because even I really don't know. How would you define power versus strength? Power is based upon work over time. How much work you can get done in an amount of time. Strength is just your ability to move mass. Okay. It's force training, mass times acceleration. But work work equals force times distance, and then. Power is force times distance over time. So how fast? So I'm doing a lot of power cleans, a lot of snatches. Um, then I'm doing uh, I'm doing a lot of circuits where we have a baseline time that we have for the circuit. And then our our job is to reduce that time as much as possible, so that I'm getting more work done. And then as the time reduces, and increase the reps, so I can I'm doing as much work as I can, jamming as much into that physiological bat as I can to fill up that five minutes. So if I have a circuit that I'm doing, I'm finishing in like 6.53 over a period of time through neuromuscular adaptation, through efficiency, 
I'm able to do that circuit in about four minutes and 45 seconds. Once I can do it in four minutes and 45 seconds, then what we do is then we add more reps or add more weight so that you can do more work. And then that time goes back up to six minutes and then you reduce it back down to get it to five minutes as soon as possible. Now, with doing all of that, did you feel going into the Athens Olympics that you had met your goals at that time? Did you feel that, you know, despite maybe being quote unquote undersized, that, that you could still, you still met the requirements that you feel that you needed to meet in order to compete against uh, those athletes at that level? I was, I was the, the best that I could be because nine months outside the Olympic, the Olympic trials, I tore my lateral collateral ligament, my LCL and my left knee off the bone. Oh, when I did that, um, I needed a total reconstructive repair, but they weren't able to do that because I didn't have a lot of time. Right. So what they did was they just gave me an Achilles tendon graft as an LCL, slapped it in there, and the doctor told me I was going to have to have surgery again later. Now, the surgeon that did, I looked for the, the surgeon to do my, um, my surgery. It was the one that did Terrell Owens' knee. Mm -hmm. play for um, the Denver Broncos. Of course, yeah. He, he said, listen, you're going to have to have this surgery later. This is going to fail later, but our hope is you can rehab and then come back. The rehab process for a lateral collateral ligament, and people can look it up online, it's nine months. I came back in five and a half. In five and a half months, I came back. I had a tournament in, in January. Oh, it was August, September, August, September, October, November, December, January. I came back in January. And I went to the Liberty Barrel Tournament in January. And because I was, when I did an explosive movement, I did a double leg and I pushed off my right leg more than my left leg. I popped my quadricep off the bone whop, and it rolled oh. up. Wait, this is after, this is after having you, your Achilles grafted? Yeah, after having after having the 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 LCL graft, right? So this, this is the first tournament back. I popped my quad off the off the bone. Looks oh. like I got a looks like I got a, a baseball right now in my on my grapefruit in my uh, on my thigh. So, so this happens now. Um, in the beginning of the match, in the beginning of the match that, that I was in the finals, and it was um, true double elimination. So if I lose this match, and I got to fight this guy again two more times. Yeah. Okay can't do it um so i ended up winning the match and i don't know if i would have lost the match i would have had to fight him again because i had already beaten beat him yeah um so i had to win the match so i ended up winning the match i go back to olympic training center they you know when i fly back they push down and feel the divot in there i remember margie the um trainer at the time after the trainer said what are you gonna do i said i'm what do you mean, what am I going to do? I don't, have, I don't have an option to do anything. We got to say, let's wrap it up. And I got to go to practice. She said, yeah. you're going to practice? I said, you're damn right. I said, what? what's the worst that can happen? I said, it's popped all the way off the bone. I said, there's nothing else. To... Because that happened, though, I ended up having groin strains all the time. So my groin was always strained. I was, I was lifting. I went down to Boca Raton to get my, my strength and conditioning program redone. And I was lifting. I pop. I partially popped my quad off of my left leg. Oh my goodness! Oh my gosh! It 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 it, it was so much fun, Dave. I can't tell you how much fun it was. Um, <laughs> oh, it, 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 I mean, I, I, I'm, 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 my my stomach's almost almost turning here just hearing just these so awful I'm, injuries. Now, now I'm 
when I go out, when I go on the mat, like you can't see underneath my pants, but sure. my probably, probably my, bruised at least. No, right? my, my, my knee is taped. My left yeah. knee is all the way taped. My right quad is wrapped, growing wrapped. Left quad is wrapped. And I'm, and I'm, you know, it's like my, it's like I got a, uh, like I got a girdle on that just allows my, my particulars to hang in the middle. You know what I mean? Sure. <laughs> right. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I walk like a robot and then I put my, my pants on, you know, and then sometimes I put tights over that to keep everything locked in. And this is how I was practicing and this is how I was training. And this, and when I went to the Olympic trials, same thing. During the Olympic trials, I pulled my groin in the finals. Worse. Bad. It was a bad pull. But I learned how to walk and run and train with pulls without limping and showing everybody that I'm hurt. You, you develop a level of mental toughness, man. Develop now, good. No, you just brought up, which it's just all of these injuries, and to be able to compete like that, it's just, just unbelievable to me. You brought up competing at the Olympic trials. Now, way back then, it, the qualification process was different, correct? Did you, was it that you had to win nationals and then you go to trials or was nationals the trials? Can you explain a little bit what that was back then? Well, the International Judo Federation had different rules than they have now. Right. So you had to qualify your weight class had to qualify within its own region. We are in the Pan-American region. And after qualifying in the Pan-American region, then you can have, if your weight class was qualified, then you can have your country can have trials for that particular spot. And if you win that spot through the Olympic trials then you go to the Olympics. Now, what we have a system now that differs. I think right. it's top 22 women or top 16 men or something like that. It's, it's a really, really different system. Um, but in, two, in 2028, it's the same system for us. Right, because it's a home. It's a home Olympic. It's the home Olympics. So the number one person goes because we get to send a full team. Yeah. So you went to the Olympic trials, you competed injured. This was what time, when was this in two, I assume this was probably early part of 2004. Or was this really toward the end of 2003? I had the surgery in August of 2003. And then I had um, the trials were in June of 2004. So it was August, September, October, November, December, January, February, March, April, May, Right, May, and then right into June. It was like nine months. Like the, the time that I needed to rehab, the trials were at that time that I was supposed to be rehab, but I couldn't wait to do all the rehab, so I had to, I had to compete early. So my, you know, my graft wasn't all the way healed, but I had to compete. Now, here's the crazy thing. Because I was doing so much upper body work, I was working on the upper body ergometer, and doing sprints on the UB and lifting. And I was doing 225 for 30 reps and shoulder press and lap pull downs and walking on my hands with the, you know, with the power wheel in between my, my legs and, you know, all type of stuff. Mm -hmm. I ended up tearing my labrum in my shoulder. So by the time I got to the Olympics, I was taking cortisone shots on my shoulder. Once I got, I didn't stay for the, after I competed, I was hurting so bad. I didn't stay for closing ceremonies. I stayed for about two or three days and then I got, then I asked them to book me a plane and I, and I went back, I came back to the United States. Yeah. 
And then in August, a year later, I was back on the operating table getting shoulder surgery. I had, I had rehab, I was rehabbing, not fake rehabbing, not, you know, not rehabbing like I rehab now just to be able to move. I was hardcore rehabbing for damn near 22 months, man. It was horrible. Now, mind you, I'm still competing. 2005 nationals rolls around Mm -hmm. and I win the 2005 nationals. And then I make the world team in 2005. Now I always enjoy telling this story. I make the world team in 2005. After I make the world team, after I make the world team at the national championships, I specifically tell Eddie Liddy when I'm there, I cannot go to the worlds. I cannot afford it. I don't have any money. I was all tapped out. I was mm-hmm. broke. He was like, no, we'll make a way for you to go. I was like, I don't have the money, Ed. He says, keep training. So I train and I train. There's no money coming because it's self-funded. I train. I train. They say, well, we've, we, um, we've created a, a seminar for you to go somewhere and do a seminar. I said, Eddie, I can't do a seminar. I'm training for the worlds. I'm training. I'm training at, um, at Budokan um, in, in Hialeah. I got my used car. I'm back home. I'm married at the time. Um, at this time, my wife at the time, we're trying to get pregnant because my I had my son in 2006, trying to get pregnant, trying to do, I was trying to start the family because the Olympics mm-hmm. is over. I'm driving my car and my car breaks down. My car breaks down on the side, on the side of the road. I got to call triple A. I mean, you know, it's just, I, I have an emotional moment on the side of the road. I have no car. I have no money. I'm working at Home Depot. I'm in a PhD program. I got a master's degree. I got an undergraduate degree. I have no job basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm still trying to compete for the United States. For what reason? I don't know. I then call and say, hey, man, if you guys don't have any money for me, I can't go. The narrative that the USA Judo put out was that I pulled out at the last minute. Huh. As if I was ruining the op- opportunity for the other person behind me. Um, I think his name was Jamal, Jamal Den Aliyev to go. I wanted him to go in the beginning and I told him I didn't want to go because I didn't have any money. Right. Bro, the way that they shitted on my name during that time was so horrible. I could not, I, I could not believe that I had just went to the Olympics for the United States. Man, that, that's really, that's really uh, terrible. So they wanted, this was 2005 or 2006 worlds that they had wanted you to do. 2005. 2005. You're, you're broke, you're hurting, and, and trying to start I'm, a family. And I'm coaching. And you're co- Okay, so you're coaching. But, and two of the clients that I coached finished ninth in the world. Two, the two clients that I coached that made that world team placed the highest on the whole team. They both got ninth in the world. Wow. Well, that's just I'm, – I'm just taking this all in because that's very disappointing to hear. I mean, I, I don't – you know, obviously – the other parties are not here to defend themselves, but, but, um, y- you know, at the same time, that's, I, I tell you what, I, I have, 
I, I have absolutely, absolutely zero to lie about. I made the world no, team. Of course not. No, no, no. Please. Yeah, no, I'm, but I'm just saying I made the world team. I didn't have the money. I specifically told them I didn't have the money. They told me to keep training. Yeah. There was, there's no money that came. And nothing came. No. And I told them I didn't have the money, man. I didn't have no money, man. Listen, I remember talking to Rhonda um, after she got done competing, man. She was having a rough time, as we all do. We all have a rough time when we get done competing because we're not built to be with the general population, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, the way we train and the stuff that we have to do and the things that we endure, you're not built to be around regular people. That's just what it is. Sure. And that and this happens to people in the military too. There, there's no we need a sport psychologist to go to before we reintroduce ourselves into the general population. Just dumping somebody back into the general population who was just they were just on the world scene. They're one of the best people on the planet at what they do. And then they come back home and they have nothing. Right. Right. And nobody cares. I mean, nobody cares. No, no. Unless you're, 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 you're somebody in, you know, one of the top popular sports in the United States, whether it's diving in the summer games or and the, you know, and figure the thing, skating in the winter games. No, most other athletes, they don't know who you are. Unfortunately. And, and, and people in the United States, unfortunately, they ask the most disrespectful question that you can ask when you tell them you went to the Olympics. And what question is that? Do you have a gold medal? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if, <laughs> if you knew, like people ask that question as if it is not that big of a deal. I mean, as right. if it's like, not, I mean, it's like, it's like statistically, man, in order to have, I mean, first and foremost, there are not a lot of, at any given time, there's only a certain amount of living Olympians on the planet. Of course, right. And within those Olympians, there's only a few of them that have gold medals. Like I got a friend that my name is Terrence Tramell. You, you don't even know him. Terrence Tramell is a three-time Olympian in the hurdles. Three times. He went to the Olympics in, in 2000, 2004, and 2008. In 2000 and 2004, he got a silver medal in the 110-meter hurdles. You've never heard of him. Mm-hmm. And the reason why you never heard of him, because he's not a what? Gold medalist. Yeah. Which is crazy. I, I, right. I agree. Yeah. Now, 2006, you're you're really struggling here. There comes there 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 comes a point where you say to yourself, "Enough's enough." I would think, correct? And you, and you decide to go a different direction. What what did that look like for you? 2006, I threw myself into the, the, the business that I had with my strength and conditioning coach. And then um, we ended up having a difference of opinion. We're cool now and having a difference of opinion. 
dissolved our business relationship. Um, I was at a super, super low point. And then in 2007, I really threw myself into the internet marketing hard and really learning what I needed to learn. Um, I made a quarter of a million dollars that year. I was, man, I was, I was getting it. Everything was going good. What was, what was it you, were you in a different line of work apart from, from the judo world or in coaching? I I was doing, I was judo, online coaching, consulting, selling DVDs. That's back when they were selling, you know, you, you know, you get, you, get your video camera out, man, and make your DVDs, man, and get it to the fulfillment house and have them mailed out and write your internet copy. And yeah. You know, okay. I mean, just hardcore marketing and getting stuff out, but the, the market was great. And then, um, then the market hit a, a huge downturn at the end of 2007. Like, everything was going great. And then everything just halted. Why, why do you think that, why do you think that is? I don't, I don't know all the ins and outs of it with the housing okay. market and how things happened. And when Obama came into office, it was during that t- period of time when Bush was going out, Obama was going in and the market tanked. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. The Lehman Brothers stuff. And yeah. And, Bro, and uh, when yeah, I mean, that, that era, that time was tough. Stop, man. And I had got audited by the IRS because I'm new in business and I don't understand, you know, records and keeping records and stuff. And I'm, and I had, and I made more money than I ever made. And I was just whoo, swiping my credit card and I mean, spending and I'm, I'm having a great time. Yeah. Um, then I owe money. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't realize that you owe 33% of that quarter of a million. Oh, that's just awful. Yeah. That's uh, it was, it was a, it was a very welcome surprise. And then, you know, we had got into the housing market and then we got in there late and then we couldn't do some of the things that other people did. We got stuck with a house that we had to get rid of. So it got tight for a little while. And then in 2008, 2009, then I had kids and my son, like it just things that just things had gotten tight. Then I was coaching um, for the Bahamas and, and then things started picking up again, 2010, 2011. And then I ended up, um, getting the dojo over here in Tampa in 2013, and then you know, yeah. Why why Tampa? I, I'm just curious because I, I, I every, we, every we both I mean, it's funny that we've never really crossed paths, and we're probably not all that far away. I live in Hillsborough County. I think you may as well. Yep. Uh, but in- your dojo's in Oldsmar, correct? Yes, yeah, right. My do my dojo is 5.3 miles away from me. Now, every um, I moved from I moved to, to Boca when I got done with the Olympics. And then from Boca, I moved to Titusville and then Titusville to Tampa. Every move that I made or that we made was based upon my wife's at the time job or her career. Okay. So, so, so wherever, a job she, brought you she, to Tampa. Yeah. Wherever she was going to, to work, that's where we went. And I worked around that because I was doing the internet marketing and I, I didn't have a brick and mortar place to go to. So yeah, you could just pull up stakes and, and move somewhere else pretty right. easily with that. <laughs> And it didn't do me any good to say, no, we'll follow me. I'll go get a $65,000 job being a strength and conditioning coach or try to get tenured at a university for $60,000, $70,000 when the amount that she was making was a lot more. Sure. Uh, she was making six figures at a time. And then by the time when we got divorced, she was making seven figures. Um, yeah, 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 right. So, right, and that's why they get divorced because, you know. <laughs> 
makes right. But, but, but yeah, I, I I've been there. right exactly. Um, which was which I understood it. You know, I get it. I tell people all the time, man, marriage is a business. You know what I'm saying? You gotta make good business decisions. Yeah, that that's uh, that's the they don't they don't teach you that uh, before you get married. Uh, no, they don't teach. They teach them, but when you're getting married, you know, you gotta you kind of learn it. But you know, I, I wasn't concerned about protecting myself. I was concerned about loving my wife and my kids. At the of course, time. and that's how it is, man. And and um, things things are just different now. You know, things are different now in the judo space. Different now in the jujitsu space. Different now in my personal life space. But I, I'm enjoying all of it. I mean, I've really, I mean, I, I'm really enjoying life, man. On a and it's, it's just different than what I thought it was. When I'm 45, I'll be 46 next year. I, I'm able to focus on myself again that I, I didn't have before. You know, my my wife at the time and my kids were my primary focus. And my wife and my kids, I don't have a primary focus on my wife and my kids anymore. My dad was like, man, the most important thing are your kids. No, 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 no. Nope. Nope. The most important thing for me right now is me. Uh, 100%. Boy, I, 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 gotta, I, can't, I could not agree with you more. Yes, man. And I have to put the mask. And, and, and it's, it's a, I had to put the mask on myself first before I could help everybody else. And that's the season that I'm in now. And I had to explain that to my dad that mm -hmm. I said, if you look at, there are certain times in your life when you're supposed to be seeding and there are certain times when you need to be reaping or harvesting. Yeah. And if I'm in the season of harvesting or reaping and you're in the season of seeding, what I what I'm doing to you can look like it's selfish. But it 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 would be if I was supposed to be in your season, but I'm not in your season, I'm in my season. Mm -hmm. And in my season, I'm harvesting and reaping so that I can then seed again. I have to take the time to take care of myself. I have a um, a business that I'm in now called Switch On, and we just finished a book, and we're we're creating a, a web class and a master class now called the VIP Life. And the book is you can find it at www.thevip.life.net. And it's what I'm talking to you about right now. Mm -hmm. About like even in your life, Dave, there are certain things that you have to keep and maintain. Yeah, that your your family life is important protecting your your family and the pandemic is important all those things are important but you still have to find that safe place where you can still get on the mat and have your time of meditation and put your gi on and roll around and even stretch and just kind of get into the whole thing that makes that that you enjoy the the time that you have and you still got to find some time to get together with some of the fellows who take care of themselves you guys have the same pandemic practices if you will in terms Absolutely. of safety, right? Because that that practice of of physiological meditation, if you will, provides you with a level of equanimity that that allows you to move and groove through life. One hundred percent. I I I'm very fortunate that my my current wife, because I have been through the pain of divorce. I know how oh, that God, is. It's horrible, isn't it? It's you horrible. Might it, nobody nobody prepares you for that. Oh it's, my it God. was I was at a I was at a very low point when when my first wife had decided to leave me. You know, we had two kids together and such. But now, you know, my wife understands that 
when I'm doing judo and when I'm doing the podcast, that I'm the best version of myself in those elements. And I, mm. and when I, when I serve myself in those elements mm. and, and allow myself to be who I am in those elements, my home life is better. You know, my, you know, sometimes, you know, with my first wife, she would think like, well, we have to do things all the time. We must be together. We must do this. We must do it together. No, I need my space to grow as an individual before I can give of myself the things that everybody else needs in the family. So, Correct. you know, I completely understand what you're saying and, and completely agree. And for, and just like yourself, boy, midlife for me, you know, I, I miss the, the energy of my, my youth and athleticism. Uh, I'm still very fit for, for being almost 46 myself, but man, my life has never been better. Honestly. Yeah, man. I, I tell you what, it's, it's, it is absolutely fantastic. Um, I can't, I, I, it's, it's, it, I didn't even think it would be this, this good and this cool, you know what I mean? And, and just, I, I can walk in my house and, and even though I don't have the sound of my kids here every week, right. I'm able to still find the, the joy in the silence. Absolutely. You know yes. Yes. Uh, I wake up at four in the morning. <laughs> for just to have that joy of silence, just just sit there with my coffee, do some reading, and and just and, and prepare my mind for the day, so I can, like I said, give give the best, uh, give as much energy as I can to everything that I need to do. Correct, correct, man, and that, it it is so, it's so refreshing, man, and it's the um, I when you look at. And I, I don't. I don't mean to. And I, I don't have no problem doing. I don't mean to drop the uh, the ads. But I just. I finished. I finished his book, man. Judo is life. Mm-hmm. Um. And I talk about the four parts of the judo throw, and I talk about the kumikata part, which is you know, grabbing hold of life as it is right now and the opportunities that are, that are available, and then implementing the. The the kazushi creating the off balancing through through your behaviors through appropriate behaviors like you know you grab a hold of the opportunity in the morning you, how do you grab a hold of that man you grab a hold of it by getting up you know and then you off balance the rest of the people in the day by doing your morning reading or your meditation or studying or doing your your, your bible study or or learning something new or, or doing 30 minutes of, of an audible book you, you understand what i'm saying of course right then you have your, your your entry point when you enter into your day. And then you have the 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 cocky part, the execution. When you execute, you enter into the day and then you start executing based upon the appropriate grips, the appropriate off-balancing, the appropriate entry point, and now you can execute. And mm-hmm. that's what life is right now. And, and everything builds on top of each other. Everything builds on top of each other. And, and I had to look at, when I got divorced, I was like, well, it, it's a bad thing. I, and I, I'll tell people this who are listening, yeah, man, it, it, divorce is like a hard, it's a hard throw, man. It's not even oh. like a hard, I, I think it's like a good foot sweep. See, the thing about a throw is when you're getting thrown and you go over, you have enough time to say, shit. Yep. I tell people, and I, I have no shame in it, man. I had to, man, I had, I, I, there was, it was a moment in time when I called the suicide hotline. I was, I was that bad off. I, I did the same. 
I've, I've been I've been a therapist and, and it threw me for a loop because I've never been the type of person to have those mental machinations where I would think about ending my life. I said, like, what the hell is going on with me? Yeah. I no longer make fun of people who are going through depression because I thought depression was just some shit that you could just shake off and snap out of it and you cannot. Yeah. No. Um, it comes over you like a like a tsunami or a wave, and there's absolutely nothing you can do. And then you have to find you have to also be able to identify, which I can do now when you, when you feel yourself getting into that lull or, or, or getting ready to start thinking those things or what I see, you can't jump into that emotional hole anymore. You have to find things that allow you to be thankful and gracious of what you have and what you're doing and the opportunities that you, that you do have. Cause life is different. You know, life is just different. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I had to learn all of that myself. I struggled. Yeah, man, it's, it's a process. It's a process. Yeah, man. I, so I, I, it took me 25 years to figure out what you just said. And then, but then when I did, when I started realizing that, you know, these type of feelings are real and, and you need help to understand that stuff, I, I, I got help and, and I've been really fine ever since. It's never, for me, it never goes away. But at the very least, I have the tools to not let it overcome my life and, and I can redirect you know, whatever those things are into more productive uh, things in my life. Yeah, man, but it was, it was, I don't ever, it all turned out well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, you know what I'm yep. I, I still believe at my core, I still believe I'm, I'm a, I'm a religious dude with a potty mouth. Mm -hmm. I still believe that all things work together for the good for those that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And if you operate inside of your purpose, you're going to be fine. There, there are certain people that are, they're going to operate inside of their purpose. And, and their purpose may have been created not for what you wanted, but for what you have. And I, I even saw, I saw a meme the other day, which was, which I shared with a friend of mine that said in 2020, I thought I was going to get everything that I wanted, but in 2020, I, I had to realize everything that I was grateful for. Right. Grateful that I have, you know what I mean? Which, which is, which is cool, you know? And that's, and that's why I'm able to not, I mean, to circle back, that's why I'm, I'm able to not be bitter about the situation about not having any coaching assignments in the United States. I've never had a coaching assignment in the United States. Never. I haven't been asked to coach any team, junior team. I was, I was, I was the assistant coach at the Junior Worlds at the Junior World Championships in the Bahamas two years ago, and I asked the coach at the time. Is I asked Eddie Liddy, who, well, one of the coaches. I asked Eddie, said Eddie, how do I get back on the? Uh, how do I get on on a on a team? How do I, how can I coach a team? And the reply was. He says, man, you got to get to know these kids. These kids don't know you anymore. <laughs> I said, yeah, they may not know me, but I said, but their parents do. Right. I said, because they buy my products. <laughs> so I'm, not, I'm not developing a relationship with no 16, 17-year-old kids. What, what purpose does that make? How do I develop a relationship with a 15, 16-year-old kid? That doesn't make any sense. That's sick. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, what am I, I'm not, no, I'm not getting on Instagram and, hey, what's going on, man? This is Dr. Ferguson. Like, yeah. no, I mean, what, what, what do you want me to do? No, there, there has, I remember they put people on the team for the Olympics that I had no relationship with. 
these, these people get picked. They get handpicked. Right. I, I, just, I just haven't been one to get handpicked. But I am so, let me say this, because I want to make sure I say this. Sure. My family is from the Bahamas. I could not be more grateful than having the opportunity to work with the Bahamas Judo Federation in the capacity of a head coach and assistant coach and even currently as a consultant. Yeah, and, and I, I want to get into that. How, how did you get that opportunity? And you had mentioned earlier, which I suspected, you did bring somebody up through all the way up to an international level, and that had never yeah. been done before, correct? No, not at all. Okay, tell, so. tell me about that, that, that experience, because when I, when I hear that, and then I hear that you're, you've not been given an opportunity to maybe do the same for Team USA, to, to me, something doesn't really uh, – it feels like something's missing there, and I don't understand what the deal is. But, but I, wanted, I wanted you to talk about uh, the Bahamas uh, Judo Federation and, and your time there and how you got involved, when that was. I had a, t- I had a talk in 2009 with the president of the Bahamas Judo Federation – DRC Ramming at the U.S. Open for Judo. And we had a conversation. He ended up knowing some of my family from the Bahamas. And we talked back and forth. And he said specifically to me, I said, how can I help you? He said, I want to stop taking a cut ass. He said, I don't want to take no more cut asses. Um, now, what, do you, what do you mean? I'm not familiar with that term. That, that means. That, that when somebody from the INSA, you're going to get your ass cut. Like, you're going to get a beating. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to take any more beatings. Okay, okay, gotcha. Try to get my ass cut, okay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I said, no problem, I can help you with that. And I flew down to the Bahamas, and we met. We met all day. I stayed at his house, and we started, and he did engineering at Northwestern. And so did his son. And we just started putting together the systems, putting the systems in place and the best practices and, and training and then talent identification and then going to the small islands and then finding the athletes and then putting it together and then finding a coalition of the willing. And man, it was rough. And then I, I was teaching judo class in some of the schools. I, I taught one of the first judo classes that, that, was, that were held in the primary school at, in the Bahamas. Uh, it, it was just a fantastic experience all the way through. And I used to have to travel back and forth. You did. Okay. I, and I was going to get to that because I was wondering, did you establish residency in the Bahamas? Yeah. And if you traveled, how long did you stay? I mean, did, did was that out of pocket? Were, were you a paid coach? I have to answer like this. I was able to be compensated for that which I asked for. Okay, that, and that, that's fair enough. That, that's more, I was more thinking compensation in general in some way, but anyway. But. Well, it's, it's, it, it gets tricky because of, because of the international laws and taxes. Of course. I can say openly, that, no, no, I didn't have any, I was not given cash. Okay, and, and, that, and that's fine. I, I, I forget sometimes that there are, you, you know, in, so, so, perhaps, so, you, perhaps it, it, there's only it, it, so much you can say given that you've already been audited once before you know so <laughs> I'm just, 
I no, understand that. Here's what I say. I will say publicly. I, I will say publicly. Yeah. <laughs> that I have never received any cash. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that, that works. That works for me. So, so you were compensated in some way. Um, but you, but you did not establish residency. Uh, no. a, 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 so you, you traveled back and forth quite a bit. Travel. I traveled back, back and forth quite a bit. Now, now you'll be able to hear everything. I traveled back and forth quite a bit. My, um, my ex-wife at the time had traveled back and forth. Um, my kids had been there uh, more than a few times. And I, I had a great time in the Bahamas. Now, how, how that? That, that, that works for me. Now, you, you, you understand now. Yeah, of yeah. course. Now, how, how long did you have this position? Uh, from 2009 with, to 2011. Okay, so so two years or so, probably a little bit over two years or so. Yes. What was the when you first took that? Were you the first head coach of the Bahamas Judo Federation, or or were you building off of somebody else's program? No, I didn't build on anybody else's program. I put my own program in place. But there have been other coaches in the Bahamas in, in the Bahamas before me. They already they had a federation. Okay. Okay. They did okay. They had see. I'm the, I just wasn't familiar, you know, just, about the Bahamas. They just, they just had not been successful internationally. Okay. Like they people would get them confused with Barbados. Okay. Right. Right. So, you're the head coach. What did you do differently for that team, that maybe your predecessors did not? Testing standards. Testing standards. Testing. You, are you talking about rank or are you talking about other measurable? measurable? Oh, I'm talking about testing standards for performance. Performance. Okay. Okay. Yes. Got you. So the, the, the first thing is that I, you can't make anything without the right raw material. So you have to find the right raw material first. So the first thing you have to do is talent identification. Talent identification is not just about the good athlete. It's about the good athlete that, that's available to you. Because there's some athletes that are that, that are good that are in some of what we call the family islands, the distance islands, the distant islands that you don't have access to. How are you going to get them to practice? You can't. Yeah, yeah, right, right. You can't. So it's the it's the it's the it's, it is the athletes that you have available that are available to you. Meaning now will their parents bring them to practice? Can you count on them being in there every day? Can you, so we went, we whittled all this all the way down. And what we ended up getting to was we came up with a couple of athletes and one of the main ones was Cynthia Ramming. Now, Cynthia ends up being the daughter of the head coach. I mean, the daughter of the, the president of the, yes. So a lot of individuals got upset because they was like, well, it's nepotism is this and that. No, it's not. Like when I have practice at five 30 in the morning, it's available for everybody to go. Right. And if she shows up, you know, and she's there, she's doing the training. She's doing everything. Not only that, like there was a period of time when Cynthia stopped talking to me. Like she didn't talk to me. She felt like I had ruined her life and that I had traumatized her. Hmm. And I did. And I told her before I started, I said, this is going to ruin your life. As you know, it, it's going to create a new life that you may like, or you may not. But I told her and her dad, and I sat down with it. I said, this is going to ruin your life as you know it. 
I've told, I've told this to every client that I've trained. And I think that people who don't say this, they're, they're being fraudulent in their presentation and they should say this mm-hmm. because this ruins lives. Now, it, the ruination of your current life, that this that we talked about in divorce, can create a better life. Right, which it did for me, and it sounds like it did for you. It did for me too. It, yeah. is, it is. But the ruination of some people's lives don't create a better life. Right. So, and some people don't make it. And I, I don't want to call out any names because I'm, I'm talking about nationally and internationally and worldwide. There are people who go through or enter into this training process to become Olympians and they don't make it out on the other side, buddy. Mm-hmm. MMA don't have that type of um, fallout like we got. There's a, hard, there's a hard fallout on the Olympic side. I've, I've often heard this for a lot of athletes as a, just a big depression after, you know. It's not even after, man. It's not even after. Hmm. But there's a big depression after. Some people, they, they, I've, I've seen people have bipolar disorder bad. I've seen people go into depression bad. I, I don't, my mom says that I needed, I, I, she told me, I, you, you need to go get some help. I said, man, I'm fine. I don't need to go to help. You know, I, now that I look back, I'm like, yeah, I probably need to go get some help. I probably need to go get some help, but I thought I was fine because you just, you just push through and fight through everything, and and even the way that you're pushing through and fighting through for you is normal, but it's not normal for everybody else. But what I watch, like I'm, I watch some of these kids train online, and. I see some of the athletes who want to go to the Olympics. I'm I'm watching them train Mm -hmm. and I know they haven't experienced it yet. And when I mean it, and I was talking to Atu Hand about this because he was just by my dojo yesterday. Is he related to Fred Hand by chance? Yeah, that's his son. Fred Fred Hand's son. Okay. Um, Okay. So I too, and I were talking to my son and I was telling I too, I said, he hasn't, he's not, he's, he's not going to be able to understand nothing you say right now, bro. I said, cause he doesn't, he doesn't have, he, he's not, he hasn't gone through it yet. And there's a moment where you have this, it's a damn, it's like a near death experience when you're training. Mm-hmm. Like you, you think you're going to, you think you're going to fucking die. Like you think you're going to die. I remember, I remember when I had it. I had it twice. I had it in Japan and I had it down in um in Boca Raton, Florida, when I was training with Jeff Munson. Um with the and, American top team? Well, I wasn't with I was Munson and I were training with Juan Carlos Santana. Okay. And we were doing a workout and we were filming a video at the same time we were doing a workout. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Um but to until you get there, he's not gonna understand. He's not gonna, he's not gonna, not gonna get it. It's to the point where you're willing to sacrifice everything to get the one thing that you want, you know. And that's what breaks people down so much because you can sacrifice everything in order to get the one thing, and then you end up with nothing. And then that's the problem. And that's that's what you mean that's, by your life being ruined. 
That's the problem. Yep. I had one client tell me that I ruined his life. He said, you ruined my life. I said, why? He said, because you made me believe that I could win. You need to understand that. Understand what he said now. You, you made me believe that I could win. But 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 don't you but but doesn't anybody that that just chooses to go down this path have to have that fundamental belief that you can win? That is the difference between the with the Olympics and every other sport, man. You Kumei loses the belt, right? Right. He he fought for the belt again, didn't he? Of course he did. Yeah. You lose the Olympics, buddy. You losing the Olympics, just, you don't have. You can't. Yeah, if you're if you're lucky and you yeah everything lines up for another cycle, maybe you can go back again. But it's not common. Not only that, but you got to think about what you did for the last cycle, and then you got to ask yourself, do you have it in you to do that again, and then more, and then more. Yeah. You lose the fight, you say, oh, I got another 12-week camp. I can train some, train, change some stuff and do eight-week camp or six-week camp. I can change some stuff and get learn some. No, man, you look at, you look at four, four years? Man, in four years? Four, four, four years? This is what people don't realize. You don't control your life until you hit 18. Before you hit 18, somebody else controlled it. Mm-hmm. And then if you spend four to eight years tracing the Olympics, that's eight years. By the time you're 26, 28, you look back and you say, what the fuck did I just do with my life? Yeah. And then when you get done, people say, well, what, what do you have? What do you have available? You have no experience. What do you mean? I got all this experience. Yeah, but that's not the experience. They think you're playing. Right, so... This, yeah, this, this definitely, what do you think about being able to, to, to support yourself during, you know, that kind of a run and trying to get to that what level? I what I did was I started my business when I was competing. I, yeah. Okay. I, I, I hired a, um, what are they called? I, I hired a PR firm. At, at the time, it was fifteen hundred a month. So I had a PR firm. As soon as I made the Olympic team, I hired a PR firm for three months going into the Olympics. And I was in Ebony Magazine. I was in the front of Washington Post. I was on NBC. I was on ESPN, the Cold Pizza Show. I was on Fox News. I was on I was on um, the Wall Street Journal online. Um, I was everywhere. And it worked out for me. And that's, that, that was the foundation for my internet marketing business. And it springboarded me and put me to the point where I, where I am now, which was great. Um, I was in a couple of magazines, but. So what, why did you hire the PR firm? What, what was the payoff for you there? Was it just, was it just for you to become more of a recognizable name or was there something yes, more to that? Think about it is, is once you spend all that time, becoming an Olympian, the only thing that is guaranteed for you is the time that you get before the first medal in your sport is dropped. Once the medal in your sport is dropped, if it's not you, you're, you're old news. Yeah. 
So the only time that you have available that you can maximize is the time from when you make the Olympic team, when you win the trials, yeah, to when you compete. That is your hottest season because you're a you're a gold medal. Everybody's a gold medal hopeful then. Oh yeah, right. I and that's that's clearly you know you 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 if you have a PR firm on your side getting you interviews, uh, you know talking about the Olympics and gold medal. Yeah, it's actually a really smart idea. <laughs> Right, because that's all I had. Now, with that being said, you know, I was hurt and beat up, and then they had the thing called the Titan Games, and they wanted me to compete in these Titan Games, and they wanted me to go to these training camps and all over here. And I was like, man, I'm not going to those training camps. I'm not doing any of that stuff. Then they were, you know, it was like, well, if you don't, these camps are mandatory. There's no mandatory camp for me, man. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> so I, there was a poor portion where, I did not go train out of the country internationally after I made the Olympic team. I only did the camp in Spain. Other than that, I didn't train. The reason being is because I knew I was only doing one Olympics. I had and put all my eggs in that basket. And after making the Olympic team, it was not worth getting hurt. With that said, I had to recognize that I had to give some in order to get some, meaning I wasn't going to be it was a possibility that I would not be as technically sharp as I wanted to be going into the Olympics, but be in superb shape and great strength getting ready for the Olympics because I had to reduce the possibility of me getting injured. Right. I couldn't put myself in a situation where I would be injured and not be able to make it to the Olympics. Of course. Right, right, right. I, I had invested too much by at that time. But even, you know, from between the trials to the Olympics really wasn't that much, much time in terms of months, correct? You're talking about maybe two or three months or do I have that wrong? It's two or three months, man. It's two or three months where people are, they're traveling and training. I stay at home. You stayed home. Okay. Yeah. I did one camp. I did the camp in Spain. Other in than Spain, that, I stayed right. home. Gotcha. Gotcha. And the reason, and the reason being was because, I pulled my groin again. I was still, yeah. I was still, to be honest, I was still rehabbing. Um, by that time, I had torn the labrum in my shoulder, so my shoulder is already hurting. So I went to the Olympics with a torn labrum. Like there was, you know, it's a significant amount of damage to my body. I, I'm, I'm, and I'm, I'm just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. Now I want to um, I want to get back a little yeah, bit. Hell of a hell of a story thus far, huh? Yeah, you know, absolutely, absolutely. I wanted to get back to asking you about the um, Bahamas mm, mm, judo. Mm, mm, mm. Um, the young Miss Raming, she was one of your uh, one of your students that you were coaching. How did you bring her, what did you do? How did you work to bring her to the level where she had earned? I, I'm sorry, you said it earlier in the interview. She had earned a medal at the Junior Olympics. Did I get that no. right? No, she went to the Youth Olympic Games. Youth Olympic Games. Okay, my apologies. She went to the Youth Olympic Games and won a match at the Youth Olympic Games. And and what was your... how? Explain how you kind of 
got her there, you know, at, at a high level, what you thought? Hours. You need so, hours. Okay. Well, the, every, everything was based upon hours. We sat down and we talked about it. So it's, if you're practicing right now and you're behind and you're behind the kid in Mongolia and behind the kid in Belarus and behind the kid in the Czech Republic and behind the kid in Budapest, the only way for you to catch up to those kids, those kids is through the reps. So right. if they're up at five or five 30, you got to be up at five or five 30. So you don't fall behind. And then when they're taking a break in the middle of the day, you got to keep up. going. Yeah. And then you got to catch up again at the end. So there were times we did 22-hour sessions, 18-hour sessions, and like 18 hours straight, buddy. Oh, goodness gracious. 18 hours of gripping, 18 hours of newaza. Um, There were times when we, like she, she did the grinds, the 60 minutes, 90 minutes. Like she rolled, like she rolled straight for 90 minutes. You know, I heard you talking about your, your blue belt test for 35. Like my no, blue belt. I know. Yeah, right. My, my blue belt test is 60 minutes and my purple belt is 90 minutes. Yeah. Uh, you know, like people watch it say 90 minutes. Yeah, 90 minutes, no bathroom break. No, if you have to urinate, you urinate on yourself and keep going, buddy. Drink, yeah. drink lots of water and hope for the best. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I've had people fail. You know, it's okay. Everybody's not supposed to pass. You know? But she got to the point where she was able to do 90 minutes because they had a culture where they were only practicing twice a week, man. They were sending people to the world championships who were only practicing twice a week. Yeah, that, that's not going to cut it. As a matter of fact, I, I know uh, actually Jimmy Pedro was just talking about how um, the United States kind of has a recreational approach to you, you know, high-level judo, and that's just not going to cut it anymore. It's not, it's not, it didn't cut it then. It, it, it's not yeah. going to cut it at all. Yeah, yeah. You know? And that was one of the things that I, I learned from Jimmy. I remember going, Jimmy invited me to his house and um, and we stayed, um, who did we stay with? We stayed with somebody, we stayed at a hotel, we stayed somewhere. We stayed, at, we stayed with Alex Atiano and we also stayed by Jimmy and we trained with Jimmy, me and Orlando Fuentes. I wanted to see how, how he could be so successful staying in the United States. And, and I, I was able to see, man, he trains like a manimal. Yeah. Like, it's, yes, it's, it's unbelievable. Like, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, you, you come from NCAA football, and then you watch this training, and it's, it's on another level, buddy. It's, huh. it's unbelievable. And, and I needed to see that so that I needed to see what I needed to implement so that I can get to that level. And then after I competed, I had to make sure that I took the – Bahamas to that level in terms of understanding what was necessary. So you have a country that people used to confuse with Barbados mm-hmm. to the point where they were the host of the junior world championships two years ago. All right. And I'm very proud of the work that I've done there. I got inducted into the hall of fame, the Bahamas you know, Federation hall of fame in 2017. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, because of the amount of work I've done. I got right. I, I was inducted into the Hall of Fame at Howard in 2014, Howard University, and um, the Bahamas Judo Federation in 2017, and the Bruce Lee Hall of Honor at the Arnold Classic in 2018. Oh, no kidding. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Wasn't, wasn't that too, the, the Arnold Classic? Didn't uh, Ronda Rousey also get recognized at that same event? 
in 2018? I, the different events, but I, I oh, think okay. yeah, different events. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So, so you left the Bahamas in in the Bahamas Judo Federation in 2011, correct? As as the as the assistant coach, yes. As the as the assistant coach, are your are your fingerprints still on that program today? Oh, do you think? Of course, they Without are doubt. fantastic. Well, no. When I went there for the worlds, there was um the athletes had the. There's a couple of athletes that had to lose weight. And when I got there, you know, there's no sauna, no nothing. I don't, you know, I don't use sauna to lose weight. Mm -hmm. And they gave me the athletes. The, the head coach at the time was Onessi, Onessi Pons. Onessi's from, um, from Cuba. He said, Sensei Randy, okay? I <laughs> said, he has to be called not Randy, Randy. Sensei Randy. <laughs> I'm giving to you, okay? And I don't want to hear nothing. If they not have weight by tomorrow, I'm taking over. Yeah. So, <laughs> so this guy, these kids, all these kids are overweight. He's giving me 24 hours to get the kids on weight. What do you do? I work my magic, baby. <laughs> with, with no sauna, no running. No nothing. Everybody's on weight. Uh, he said, he said they when it's over. He said, Sensei Randy, I don't know what you do, but it's working. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> I had the parents come up to me and they said, How how did you how did my kid lose all these all this weight? And the, and the children said, He just he only had us walking. That's what they said. Is that what they did? That's what they did, man. It's science, man. Walking. Science, man. Wow. You got you to gotta understand the science, man. The weight cutting for judo, for MMA, and it's all different. Like Mike, Mike Dolce and I talk about this all the time. Like the, 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 the secrets to the weight cut, man, are something. You got you to know what you're doing, man. Mm -hmm. You got you to gotta know what you're doing. You got to know that. And, be, and before, when you could hydrate, you got to know how to... Back in the day when you could rehydrate the people, you know, you, like I had to run IV. You have to know how to run an IV, man. Oh, you 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 know how to do that? Get the get the man, man bro. <laughs> Today's like the rules have changed. So no, you can't run IVs anymore. But man, you have to know if I had to I've I've run my own IV on myself before. I you have, you have to know how to run an IV. Like if you get sick or you have to run run IV, you know how to like if you if you're hurting, you have to give yourself I am um, Toradol shot back in the day when they they don't make I am Toradol anymore. What they call Katora, like they don't make it anymore. Everything is oral. But man, if you're hurting, you got to compete. Man, everybody used to have a get right bag. Huh. Man, it's 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 just different, man. It's like different. Like I have a in my house, but I have a game ready machine. Like people don't know what a game ready machine is. What, what is a game? I've never even heard of that. My son hurt his ankle uh, during this football season, and um, he's he's Florida virtual schooling, you know, because of the pandemic and stuff. Yeah, same with my. He was like, "Man, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to play next week, Daddy." So he said, I said, "Oh no, buddy." I said, "Not only are you playing next week," I said, "But you're practicing on Tuesday." I said, "I just need an extra day." He said, "I can't walk." I said, "Man, I'm an expert." 
on being hurt Saturday and playing the next Saturday. So I have a game ready machine that has, it's a, like a $2,500 machine. Ice no, I'm looking at it online right now. I've never even seen this before. Bro, I got a game ready machine. I got stem in my house. I got ice buckets. So he's, you can sleep on the game ready machine that allows you to get the ice and compression on and off for 30 minutes all the whole time while you're sleeping. Wow. So this, this allows you to manage the inflammation. So yeah. if he was, if he was in school, he would have been out for maybe about three, four weeks. Man, this guy uses the machine, comes back, ice in the ice bucket. He was like, and I, I wrapped him up and taped him at home. He said, Dad, you know how to tape ankles? I said, I said, Rufus, I said, boy, you silly. I said, man, when you I said, when you go to black college like I did, if you don't know how to tape your own ankles, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah. Because sometimes the line is long, especially when you're a freshman or when I started competing internationally in judo, it, there's no, there's no trainer. But you got to learn how to tape your ankles, man. You got to learn how to tape your ankles. You got to learn how to tape your wrist. You got to learn how to tape your fingers. You got to learn how to tape. Yeah. You got to learn how to wrap your own groin. Like you got to learn how to, you got to learn how to, how to function. I had to learn how to tape my own knee. Like you got to learn how to function, man. But this guy was, he was well and he was, he took about two weeks to get well, but he was able to practice and able to play. And if he was in school full-time, he would have never played. He would have never been able to ice around the clock. Those are the things that the professional athletes do that these people don't have a clue about. Sure. I, I agree with Jimmy Pedro. There's a level of professionalism that these athletes just don't understand. Mm -hmm. They don't have a clue about. That, that, and even as hard as they practice, there's a level of professionalism that they just don't have on the diet side, on the journaling side, on the, on the practice side, they just don't have it. And, and all of it's not their fault. They're just not, in some respects, USA Judo kind of wants you to do some of it on your, on your own and then take credit if it works out well for you. <laughs> right, right, right. I, I mean, I don't, I, I'm not saying right in the sense that I, I've had experience with that personally. I'm just saying I've heard I've heard similar. Right. Now, I want to ask you about your MMA experience. Why would you ever choose to get punched in the face? <laughs> it had to be the dumbest thing that I've, that I've ever decided. To really? Do. Okay, really? <laughs> I will tell you this. What I found out is that, and this is unfortunate, When it comes to me and my life, what I found out, if I don't check off all the boxes, cross all the T's and dot all the I's all the time, then I get excised and eliminated. Mm -hmm. So I can walk up and teach you know, or attempt to teach somebody MMA grappling or grappling on the cage and MMA. I could do all those things. And the first thing that they point out is, well, you never fought before. Right. Right. Do you think that's necessary? To no, it's coach not MMA? No, it's not necessary, but I'm not, I'm not Danaher. And what's my man's name? I'm not Eddie Bravo. Like, those guys never lined up and they didn't, they didn't do MMA. Yeah. Right, right, right. They didn't. Nor, nor, nor do they have to, nor does anybody require them to. 
But then you, nobody's listening to Antonio McKee unless he's fought before. Because mm-hmm. if Antonio McKee comes up and he's never fought before, nobody's listening to him. And then if they do, they're talking about his record and what he did and what he didn't do. Or who has he developed? Well, he didn't have to develop anybody in order to teach. Right. Right. The same yeah. argument happens. That same argument happens in judo. Well, who have you developed? Well, that's a, that's a, that's a stupid question because in order for you to develop somebody, that's a 10 to 15 year journey. So you mean to tell me you, you I need to wait 15 years before I develop somebody before you listen to me? But you help. I mean, you helped. Uh, you and Chris Round, who I've had on this podcast before, uh, helped uh, Kayla Harrison with with scouting. I mean, I mean, for yourself, which I didn't know that. I didn't even know that about Chris. At least I don't think I did. I mean, you're, you're part of a process that helped somebody win a gold medal at the Olympics. I mean, that's huge. And I don't, I don't put it at the forefront nor market it. Now, now why not? I, that, that's, that's a big deal. I mean, you're part of a process that... Well. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's me getting in the way. I just don't know how well it would have it would be received. Respecting. I know the I know the work I did. I know how much work I did. I know how arduous it was. I know how many hours we 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 stood up and we stayed up knocking it out. I know how many phone calls we had. Um it's it's been extensive. Um it was extensive. Um some of that work, I'm glad that I did it. Uh, it gives me great joy to look back and see what she's done. I, I don't, I can't take any credit for what she's done because I, I didn't, I didn't get on the mat and fight those matches. Of course, but but you are part. You know, everybody there, that finds success there, has people behind them to help there, them. Correct. There, there's a portion where I am a cog or a nut in the yes. in the process that that helped the whole thing turn. Absolutely. And, and it, it was a privilege to be in that space. And, and that's what I got for it. And I don't have anybody. Kate, I don't have, I don't have Jimmy, nor do I have Kayla. And I'm cool with Kayla, nor do I have Kayla, nor do I have anybody in that process who has ever gotten on a video and said, Hey man, thank you so much. I appreciate how much you helped me and helped. The, I, I don't have any of that. It doesn't happen. Right. It doesn't happen. But you, 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 you can still take a lot of pride. Uh, you can, you can. There's because I, have, I have a friend that whose father was, you know, played a small part in the Apollo missions. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't get in that space shuttle, but, but, you know, he was part of that team of massive team that produced something amazing. Right, and I don't know his name, and I don't know what he did, and he's cool with that, and that's how it is with me sometimes. I just, sure, I'm, I'm cool with it. I I did it. I didn't get paid for it. I did it because I wanted to do the best I could to say that I helped. Case in point, um, I, I don't I don't care what people think about the political leanings or whatever. I did not want to sit in the seat that I sat in as, as a Howard University graduate when the first um black man was running for president of the united states and then mm-hmm. my kids asked me what did you do and i just say that i i only voted mm-hmm. i didn't want that to be i didn't want that to be my particular story sure 
So I canvassed, I called, I walked, I drove people to the polls. I mean, I did all those things because when I sit down and have that rocking chair moment and I also have my kids out and they have pictures where they're, where they're holding up signs and they're, and, they're, and they're campaigning because I want them to have that that I didn't have. When I was growing up, I didn't have the opportunity to say that I wanted to be president of the United States in class and not have everybody laugh at me. I still remember to this day, and I tell this to her all the time, I remember saying, in, and I was at Oak Grove Elementary, and they, they were going around the class asking people what they wanted to be, and I said I wanted to be the president of the United States, and they laughed at me. And they said, oh, man, a black man be never be president of the United States. And I never said that again. Hmm. But my son and my daughter have a different story that they can tell. And the development of their self-concept was so important to me that I didn't not, I wanted to make sure that I was part of a process that would that would allow them to tell a, a tell, different story. Tell, tell a different and, and right. that be received in a different way. Right. And 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 I wanted to be part of a process when it came to Kayla for the main reason because of all that I appreciate that Jimmy Pedro has done for me when I was coming up. Right. And because I wanna I wanna create a different narrative for a, a young girl that is out there to say, you know what, I can be an Olympic champion in judo. My daughter right now wants to go to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. My daughter, one of, the, one of the main reasons why my daughter wants to go to the Olympics in judo is because her dad went. Another main reason is because she's had the time to watch Ronda Rousey. Ronda Rousey's been at her house before. Ronda, yeah. She's met Ronda Rousey. Ronda, she goes backstage. Ronda Rousey hugs her, kisses her, tells her that she's pretty, picks her up. Like That changes her life. And then she sees Kayla Harrison win an Olympic gold medal. And I never had this conversation with my daughter, but years later, I'm going to be able to pull out that scouting report and let her know what daddy did to help her as much as I could in the capacity that I could help and, and let, and let my, my daughter know, and I'm helping you too. Absolutely. You, you, you know, you, you do that duty, which is best and leave until the Lord the rest. You do, you do the best you can. Like there, there's portions of my life that I have to, and people get on, get on me about it in, in judo. And I, sometimes I can care less. It's like, Hey man, they complain about the marketing. Well, I, I don't have, like, I, you have to market yourself and your services. Otherwise, nobody knows who you are. So when you, you just need to sit back and, and, uh, and word them out. No, you can't. Listen, man, the, 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 the people who come for the, for, the, for the light bill and for the gas bill, Tico, for us, yeah, they, they're not, they don't care anything about no word of mouth. They want, they want their money. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely understand. I mean, word, word of mouth is great for a guy like me that just does this on the side, you know, the podcasting thing. I got a regular career, but you, you're feeding your family off of this. So, you know, you can't rely on word of mouth. I totally get that. You got to drive that engine. Yeah. You know, and you got to do, and you have to do things that, that are, they have to be moral. They have to be ethical, but they also have to be, they have to be effective, man. And there's certain marketing practices that are effective, you know, that you did you have to utilize, you know. Certain certain way you gotta write things and certain copy that has to be written and 
certain con how many times you got to contact somebody a day or a week or in a month yeah it just has to be done did you have a mentor to to learn all of this or did you figure this out by trial and error oh lord Irvin. okay yeah lord lord and then dan kennedy and then um a lot of stuff i learned on the um harvard business review and studying but yeah, and then studying internet marketing, rough. You got, I mean, studying, studying. Right. It's not, stuff is not easy, man. It's not easy at all. It's not easy. But it has, it has to get done, you know? I mean, I, I, I enjoy it. At this time in my life, I'm really enjoying the grassroots process of teaching the you know, the regular everyday person that wants to come into the dojo. Yeah. I see, I see it on your Instagram all the time. I love it. Which, which, which that reminds me, I wanted to get, get to asking you something about your, your judo club, Tampa, Florida judo. It's actually currently in Oldsmar. It used to be in Tampa proper, right? Right off of Falkenberg. Is that right? Well, it never was in Tampa proper. It used to be in Riverview. It was? Yeah, Riverview Brandon area, right. It's in Brandon. Oh, okay. I, Brandon, I used to live in Brandon. Riverview, so. Brandon's like Tampa, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I, I can't stand going through Brandon. Uh, Tampa's not much better, but Brandon on, on 60 is just horrible. Yeah, it's not good. I mean, it, it was a long drive. It was an hour each way. Um, not, now my dojo is 5.3 miles from my house. That's that's got to be awfully convenient. Yeah, that makes sense right. I, to to move it all the way up there. I used to work up in Oldsmar at at Nielsen, so I, I know the area quite well. It's, it, and it's beautiful. I love it. I, yeah, I, it I, is. I, it is nice up there. I love the you know I love the students, man. I love the, and I'm learning new stuff because there's some man. Quite honestly, there's some things I did not know on the grassroots side. Like man, I, the other day, I mean, I don't have any problems providing any self-deprecating comments. Sure, man, I got Dashi Barai confused with Okuriashi Barai. I was like, "What the hell? Which one is it? I can't remember." <laughs> because it, it, I know the names of a lot of things, but some of the the minutia never. You know, my job was to take the guy who was standing and put him on his back. You know what I'm saying? And I was really good at that. Um, so some, some, some of the things for me get lost. When people ask me what type of black belt I am, I tell them, I said, man, you have a lot of different black belts. I'm a sport judo guy. Sure. You know, and if you're looking for regular self-defense, I'm not a regular self-defense guy. I've learned more self-defense along the way. Uh well, I tell I tell people all the time. I, the first line of defense, man, is 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 yourself. I said the way you eat, how much you exercise. Mm-hmm. I said that's the first line of self defense. And I tell you, I said if you think you, if you think you're in great shape or you got some great self defense, I said you line up against a, uh, um, a D lineman in the NFL, and your self defense techniques aren't going to mean a a, a a hill of fucking beans. Nope. You know? I, I've seen that for myself. With uh... they, will, they will not with Keon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. That's right. That's it. It, it just happens. But I, I really enjoy the, the grassroots process. 
I still make products to help those people who want to compete, but I make them such that no matter, no matter what level you are, you can determine the level of, of intensity that you want to take the, the, that particular product to, you know, sure. it's up to you. Now I see that you utilize, um, and I see it on the Instagram a lot, uh, grappling dummies. Mm. How, how have you felt that has helped your students? Because you, you use them in a way that I have never um, seen either in person or on video. I mean, sometimes I see vi- people put up videos of just chucking a grappling dummy around and stuff, but I, I don't, I've never thought that kind of training was very effective, but what you seem to be doing is very effective. Can you speak a little bit about that on, in, in your, your thoughts on using these grappling dummies and how they've helped your students? Well, when it comes to what we call LTAD, long-term athletic development, the one thing that you want to do is you want to make sure that you reduce as much trauma on the body as possible. So in terms of reducing soft tissue damage, I use the dummies so that I can transfer some of the technical repetitions onto the dummies. So some of the things that we can do, like jujigatami or the armbar or the triangle or some of the pinning combinations or the or some of the... Um, the transitional work on the ground that we can do. Um, we utilize the dummies for that so that I can transfer the, the trauma onto the dummies and away from the students. I also um, enjoy doing the deliberate practice repetitions on the dummies because the dummies don't talk back and the dummies are always ready for the next repetition. So when I want to get hours and hours and hours of practice on, on doing the same repetitive motion, I use the dummies as, as well. This is based upon the research by Anders K. Erickson, who is the pioneer uh, in the realm of deliberate practice and from one of his business partners, Robert Poole. Um, you practice a thing so that you, you understand not only how to do it, but so that you develop myelin sheath over that neural pathway. And then I put the athlete into the, uh, the environment of play using a, a regular person so they develop something called mental representation. So that when they see a movement or opening that creates the opportunity for that thing that they're doing, then they know to do it. So then when they go back to the dummy, now they have mental representation from rolling. They have the skill from developing the neural pathway, the mental representation through the rolling. So now when they go back to using the dummy again, now they're not only developing skill, but also the mental representation at the same time, because they can see how it is, it is applicable. And that is how I use the dummies. I also use the dummies because I'm training the four pillars of human movement, push, pull, rotation, locomotion, and um, level change. The dummy allows me to do that. I'm doing the push-pull when I'm throwing. I get the rotation from the throws. I get the mm-hmm. level change when I'm picking the dummies back up. And I get the locomotion if I decide to put it in there from having them run or get on a bike or, or move around. So there's not a lot of locomotion in judo. So I'm only really concerned with the push-pull, level change, and the rotation. And the dummies give me all of that. Now, when you talk about the, 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 the level change when picking the dummy up, yeah. Do you mean that you have your students maybe do a certain thing to pick the dummy up? What, what do you mean by just that if it's it not up. that? You just pick it up. Okay. Like a deadlift gives you a level change. They just pick the dummy up. And what happens is my students end up getting a lot stronger. 
because I have six-year-olds who are picking up a 35-pound dummy and then they move to a 50-pound dummy and then a 70-pound dummy. My daughter's 10 years old and she can throw a 140-pound dummy. Right. So you have grown people who come in there and they can't pick the 140-pound dummy up. And I, I, I call Rod Dio and say, Rod D, pick that dummy up and throw it with Selenagi. She'll pick it up, throw the dummy with Selenagi, put it back in it, and then run off. Yeah. And they want to know how in the hell that she does Well, her body is fortified because she's been picking up heavy shit and putting it back down. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And the kids just end up being stronger. They, they get more throwing reps in than you get for you to have throwing reps in your dojo. If you go with your, with a partner, you throw for 10 times, they throw for 10 times. I, I can have one of my kids can fit in 50 throws on that dummy. When you, when you've only gotten in 10, this past weekend, my daughter did. We had a we had a session. Roddy threw the dummy four hundred and sixty times. Yeah, that's that's a that's that's a lot. I couldn't take four hundred sixty falls. I, I think I I think I got a hundred a night. That's about it. Exactly. So no, they said, well, it's not the same. Yeah, it's okay. So it's not the same. But in the relationship of reps per trauma, I get more reps, less trauma. I'll take it any day of the week. And you, you, you also utilize this for Nawaza as well, correct? You, you, you have your students practice transitions and, and arm bars and triangles yeah, and such? We have, yeah, we have certain systems that we practice on the dozen. Systems, okay. Yeah. Man, I have a 52-week training program, man, utilizing the dummy. It's, called, it's on mattworkmagic.com. Mattworkmagic.com. 52 weeks. 52. And and that's is that focused on using training dummies or is, or is that just? Focused on using the dummies. 52 weeks, buddy. A new technique every week for 52 weeks. And and this program builds on repetition. On repetition, explanation. There's a there's a um, a theoretical portion and a technical portion every week. Every week, 52 weeks. Sick like the flu. <laughs> well, that well. So matworkmagic.com. Is this all, is this a, is this like a, a a a DVD series? Is this something that you have on on a streaming platform or is it booked or online? It's inside of an educational portal. Okay. You register. You get your login and your password. You will get it. You get an email and then you log in every week. You're gonna get a new video and after and after and every and you can see your your videos every week. You can see your videos. It's a, it's a, it's a course room. It's an online classroom. Every month when you finish, you get a certificate. You start out with a white certificate. Then it's white, yellow, and then yellow, and then yellow, orange, and then orange, and then orange, green, and then green, and then green, blue, and then blue, and then blue, purple, and then purple, and then you go all the way up till you get a. You get like a red certificate at the end. Now, what uh, happens? Uh, like, how, so how do how do students pass? Do they have to demonstrate it in front of you? Do you do they have to send a video of themselves demonstrating? They, do they, they answer up, questions? They upload their videos. They upload. In, okay. They upload their videos in the in the Facebook uh, group. So and you week, evaluate from there. You evaluate, and everybody gets involved. So so everybody, the people who who have started before you, they will come in and critique you. Or I'll ask someone else to come critique somebody else so they can learn by doing and learn by coaching and learn by teaching. Well, that's, that's fantastic. Um, 
Well, listen, Roddy, my son has just texted me, so I, I got to get him at work. Man, do your thing, brother. I think we've covered just about everything that I wanted to cover, but I really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking time uh, to have this conversation. I, uh, I'm, I'm left very impressed, honestly, and uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. All right, man. Well, thank you so much, man. I, I want to tell people, man, to, to make sure that uh, you go to www.judoislife.net. Go to www.thevip.life.net. And also check out www.gripfighting.com. And thank you so much for your time, man. I appreciate it. Oh, and, and, and one more thing. Um, social media accounts, people want to follow you. How do they get a hold of you? Tampa, Florida Judo. You can follow me on Instagram at Tampa, Florida Judo. You can also follow me at Tampa, Florida Judo on uh, Facebook and also Nawaza Excellence on Facebook. And any any Twitter? Oh, Twitter is just my name, Radi, R-H-A-D-I, or you can follow me at Judo Doc, J-U-D-O-D-O-C. Very good. Radi, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I, I really enjoyed this and uh, you have a great rest of the evening. Hey, man, thank you so much, man. You take care. You too. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Open Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style.